Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I see we have a number of uh, new additions from the morning. Fear not, there is no direct connection between, uh, between the morning and the afternoon sessions. Um, there is, however, a thematic connection. Uh, this morning we talked about a number of fascinating historical um, chapters that deal with the interface of medicine and Jewish law. Um, and uh, we illustrated that uh, throughout every century, the rabbis were not only aware of contemporary advances in science and medicine, but they were addressing them comprehensively and thoroughly. And we discussed a uh, responsum of Rev. David Ben Zimra uh, from the 16th century about the use of mummies for medicinal purposes and showed his methodology of uh, discussing the issue first with the pharmacists and physicians and uh, obtaining the medical knowledge as best as possible and then and only then rendering his rabbinic decision. Uh, this afternoon will be a continuation of that same methodology. Uh, we are shifting now into the 21st century uh, with new and very fascinating and exciting things, many of which you'll be hearing about over the next few days, uh, issues of uh, cloning, uh, organ donation, assisted reproduction. There'll be a little bit of overlap with some of those this, uh, this afternoon, um, but I assure you there'll be plenty more, uh, plenty more things to discuss from all the, the wonderful lectures, many of whom I know personally and have heard personally, and they're all uh, uniformly excellent. Um, the, uh, we've come so far in our uh, advances in science now with all these things which you're going to be hearing about this week that uh, a scientist actually had the audacity to approach God in the heavens and say, God, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure we need you anymore. We can do just about everything you can do. And uh, indeed, we can even create man just like you created man in the uh, first days of creation. So God turns to the scientist and he says, is that so? How do you do such a thing? So he says, we take some uh, dirt from the ground and we bring it to the laboratory and we extract the DNA and we, uh, and we form it into a human being and we blow air into the nostrils and uh, very similar to what you did. So God said, is that true? Why don't you show me exactly how you do it? So the scientist bends down and proceeds to pick up the dirt from the ground. And God says, no, no, no. You get your own dirt. <laughs> So you see, despite the fact that scientists are able to do extraordinary things, we do have to realize that the ultimate creator is the one who guides everything that we do on this earth. And consequently, it is our objective during the course of today and the course of your subsequent lectures to show how halacha, how Jewish law, interfaces with these modern and fascinating technologies, technologies which seem to know no bounds, uh, and one of those fascinating areas is indeed the field of genetics uh, and the Human Genome Project, which we are going to be talking about a little bit this afternoon. And while mummies and uh, the seven-chambered uterus, which we talked about this morning, may not be of direct clinical relevance to too many people sitting in this room, I suspect this afternoon's talk will have a little bit more relevance. Uh, and just by show of hands, how many people in this room actually have chromosomes? Anybody? <laughs> Excellent. How many, how many people in this room think that their entire set of chromosomes is perfect and has absolutely no existing or predisposition to any forms of human disease? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> and in fact, uh, the geneticists uh, state that every one of us carries fatal human genes, fatal, deadly genes. 
but we also carry genes that counter those effects of these fatal genes. And to give you an idea of the magnitude of the human chromosomes, the magnitude of the DNA, the magnitude of each cell's information that's encoded, I heard Dr. Mark Hughes in, in uh, Michigan who's performing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which we'll talk about in the course of our lecture, which is absolutely fascinating, give a very beautiful analogy. And he says that if you unravel the DNA within one cell and you spread it out, and you, some of you may be familiar, there's letters which represent within the DNA, there's the A, the T, the C, and the G. And if you simply take them to a computer and type out in 12 font print, it will equal 300 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And each volume, although not exactly, but he said each volume in a certain metaphorical sense correlates to each gene. And even the number of genes the scientists are revising today. So for example, a year or two ago, they thought there were 100,000 genes that were encoded in this extraordinary billions of sequences of DNA. Uh, but now they're revising it downward. Now it's up to 20,000, 30,000 functions that these uh, DNA uh, can actually perform. Uh, some of the malfunctions that we have, some of the diseases that we have, are changes in the structures of paragraphs within some of the volumes within the encyclopedia. And some of the diseases we'll be talking about are actually typographical errors in one word, in one paragraph, on one page of the 300 volumes. And if this doesn't give you an appreciation of your health, and of, and of the fact that there is above us a creator, then I can't imagine what will. So what I'd like to do today is to begin by just sharing with you a few sources from the rabbinic literature from previous times, which give us a very small indication of the concept of genetics, and then to shift, and then to shift into the modern world with a modern case and a family, a fictional family, which we will trace and follow throughout their lives and to see how the world of genetics can theoretically impact on every one of us sitting in this room. <clears throat> we begin with the Pasuk in Bereshis in Genesis on the front page of your handout. We talked about man attempting to reach the power of God. What give us, gives us the license to do that? What gives us the audacity to even embark on the whole discipline of genetics to attempt to do the things that we're doing, to manipulate the DNA, to treat human disease, uh, to do things which you'll, you'll hear about from uh, Dr. Grazi, about infertility, the extraordinary things they're doing, the things you'll hear from Fagy Kaplan about cloning. So the license comes from this pasuk, comes from this phrase. We are commanded to fulfill the obligation of be fruitful and multiply and to populate the world and to conquer it which includes attempting to do as much as we can, as long as we do it within the rubric of Jewish law, within the fabric of Jewish law, and appreciate that there are constraints. And simply because it can be done does not mean that it necessarily should be done. And we then turn to the Gemara Nida, which tells us the contributions of the man and the woman to the makeup of a child. Shlosha shutfin ba'adam, there are three partners in the creation of man. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Avi Ve'ima, the father, the mother, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and God. Aviv Mazriyalova and the father emits the white substance. Shemimenat samosagidim v'tzipornayim, from which are derived the bones and the sinews and the fingernails. Umoach shebarosho and the brain. Beloven shebain and the whites of the eye. Imo mizaras odem, the woman gives forth the red substance. 
Shemimena or ubasar v'saros, from which are derived the skin and the flesh and the hair, shchor ba'ayin and the black of the eye. Ve'akadosh baruch hu nosin ba'rucha unushama uklaster ponim, and God invests this inanimate substance with life. Ure'iyasa ayin and vision in the eye, u'shmiyasa ozen and hearing to the ear, v'dibur peh and speech to the mouth, v'hiluch raglayim and ambulation to the legs, u'bina v'hasechel, and the power of intellect and thought to the mind. They came in when the time comes for man to depart this world. God rescinds his contribution. And what is left is a lifeless, inanimate corpse. Here you have an indication of the contribution, anachronistically to say genetic contribution, of the man and the woman to the makeup of the child. They each give four things which ultimately will produce something in the child that they have. And in the next passage, people have actually pointed to this as a true indication of the at least rudimentary understanding of the transmission of disease to family members. And this comes from the Gemara Yuvamos about the issue of, of uh, performing a circumcision, <coughs> performing Mila. And the Talmud teaches us, Tanya, Mila, Mala Harishon Umes, if a person, a couple, has a child, and they perform a circumcision on that first child, umes, and tragically the child dies. Shani umes, they have another boy, and tragically that second child dies as a result of bleeding complications from the circumcision itself. Shlishi lotamul, the third one you shouldn't circumcise. Why not? What does one have to do with the other? There's obviously a sensitivity to the fact that something is being transmitted in the genes from the parents to the child. And the likelihood, albeit not certainty, that that subsequent child might develop the same condition and die as a result of the Mila is enough to prevent the child from being circumcised, to prevent Mila, which is such an essential part, such an essential mitzvah um, of an individual's life. And it even continues that if three sisters have children, Vatanya, now I'm just skipping a little bit, Ma'aseba Arba Achios, it's in the, uh, the middle of that paragraph. Four sisters, Bitsipori. Shimala Rishona Umes, one sister had a child, and that child died from circumcision. Shnia Umes, the second sister, not the same family. Second sister had a child, and that child died. Shlishi Umes, another sister had a child that died from circumcision. Raviz, Boss, Nerab Shimon Ben Gamliel. Ultimately, the fourth one said, listen, I had three sisters. Each of them had a child that died from circumcision. I now have a son. Am I supposed to circumcise my son? He says, no. You are not supposed to circumcise your son. Some point to this passage, by the way, as the very first historical reference to a modern medical condition. Any idea what that might be? Hemophilia. Some say that this is the first case in the history of all literature that discusses hemophilia, a condition which wasn't described till. Uh, you know, 18th, 19th century. Right, there are reasons why it's the eighth day, and there are conditions which could be dangerous to circumcise prior to the eighth day as well, sure. Um, in, our, in our last passage, um, now that we know that there is a concept that, that even sisters can carry the same genetic disease, and we're expanding this concept of genetic sensitivity to other family members, lo yisa adam isha, lo nichfin, so the Gemara says, and it's debated whether it's a, 
an obligation or a suggestion that a man should not take a wife, and reciprocally, a wife should not take a man, from a family of nishfin. Nishfin is a condition which we probably would translate today as seizure disorder or epilepsy. And not from a family of lepers, suffering from the disease leprosy. Now, we can, we can debate whether leprosy or seizure disorder are indeed today genetically inherited or understood to be genetically inherited. Leprosy is not. There are forms of epilepsy which may indeed be inherited. Um, just parenthetically, uh, leprosy, um, mitzora, I actually I should, I'm translating erroneously. Mitzora, which is discussed in the, in the Bible extensively, is not the leprosy, the way we understand it today. Many of you are, are, are nodding knowingly that that is the case, and I'll just explain why it has been uh, thought to be associated with leprosy in the, uh, in the Septuagint, in the Targum Hashivim, which we actually commemorated the writing of the Septuagint on a Sorbatavis, which we fasted um, for the, uh, the translation of the Bible into Greek. Uh, the Targum Hashivim in the, in the Bible recounts the, the miracle that the uh, that uh, Ptolemy sat 70 rabbis together, uh, sat them in separate rooms, and, and the miracle was that each one of them in separate rooms w uh, came up with the exact same translation word for word. Um, and that was one of the miracles, although some say the miracle, so that's not such a miracle. If you have 70 rabbis in the same room and they come up with the same <laughs> translation, that would be a miracle. Um, but but uh, so I'll, I'll discuss in a minute. So the... Um, so the Targum Hashivim translated saras as lepros. Um, <coughs> lepros is a Greek word for, it's a generic word for skin disease. It does not refer to a specific skin condition. Later on in history, there was a disease which is known variously as Hansen's disease. And leprosy, uh, which is a, a specific condition, has absolutely nothing to do with the, with the biblical saras. Zero. And people have written for centuries trying to figure out how tsaras is leprosy. It's just a linguistic association uh, by virtue of a, a historical accident. Uh, the disease tsaras. So then the question is, what is the modern-day uh, understanding of the disease tsaras? The answer is there is no, no specific disease which people uh, can identify which fits all the criteria of tsaras as discussed in the Torah because it's not only a disease that afflicts humans, it's also on houses, it's on clothes, uh, it can be uh, some uh, stated it might be some fungal origin, some fungus, but there's, these are these are historical uh, discussions. But whatever the case may be, we don't have the benefit of the disease seraph today. But but there, at least there's a, a, a rabbinic sensitivity to the fact that if someone carries a disease in the family, maybe you should be cautious about marrying into the family of someone who carries potentially inheritable diseases. I'm sorry, in the, in the right, that, that's a stronger, it's a stronger support because hemophilia is an X-linked disease and is transmitted by the mothers but is only expressed by the sons. So since, and the reason that is is because, I'm sorry, it's a Y-linked y disease. So only, only the, the males will, I'm sorry, it's X-linked disease. It's only the males will express it because they don't have another gene. They have a Y chromosome instead of another X chromosome, so that X chromosome goes unsuppressed. So it's a recessive gene which is expressed exclusively in the males. Women, while carriers of hemophilia, are not, uh, don't possess the disease because they never get the recessive gene from both the parents. Because the, uh, um, and and that's, uh, that's why. And that's, that's another support, by the way, why it's specifically hemophilia, because it's transmitted by the mothers to the male children. That's, a, that's just an additional support. So these are some, uh, some indications that in the early rabbinic sources, 
uh, and I'm, I'm obviously not going to tell you that they understood genetics as we understand genetics today. They obviously did not. Um, but at the same time, there at least is a sensitivity of the notion of genetics, of the notion of the existence of disease which can be transmitted from generation to generation. What I'd like to do now is begin our, our discussion of the modern understanding of genetics with a fictional family whom we will trace through a number of different generations. And our family begins with a young couple whose names are Yaakov and Rachel. And Yaakov and Rachel are engaged. They're about to be married. And their parents are, are delighted and very happy about the engagement. But they suggest to this young couple that perhaps they should undergo some genetic testing to see if they're carriers for genetic diseases. So this is complete news to this young couple who have absolutely no exposure to genetic diseases, don't have a clue what their parents are talking about. And they are left with this dilemma. Should they, in fact, test for these diseases? What are these diseases? What happens if they do test for them? Um, is there anything that can be done about it if you do test? So if we turn the page, we have some information on the notion of carrier testing. Genetic diseases in the Jewish community. Now, this information is gleaned from a number of different websites which offer uh, testing today. But it was very nice, uh, succinct information which really conveys uh, in a straightforward fashion what this testing is all about. What are genetic dis Jewish genetic disorders on the, on the top of the handout? Jewish genetic disorders are a group of conditions which are unusually common among Jews of Eastern Europe European descent. Although these diseases can affect Sephardi Jews and non-Jews, they afflict Ashkenazi Jews more often, as much as 20 to 100 times more frequently than the rest of the population. Why are certain disorders more common amongst Ashkenazi Jews? Scientists believe that certain disorders became more common among Ashkenazi Jews because of at least two processes, the founder effect and the genetic drift. Founder effect refers to the chance presence of these genes among the founders or ancestors who immigrated to Eastern Europe at the time of the diaspora. Prior to this time, we presume that these disorders were no more common among Jews than among any other people. Genetic drift refers to the increase in frequency of the genes for these disorders in this group as a result of chance, because Jews tend not to marry outside of their faith and community. The relatively high frequency of these genes among Jews did not pass into other communities. <coughs> and there is an ex extensive body of research about the origins of the genes, and there, and there are ways scientifically to trace back retrospectively which period of time historically some of the, these genes date back to. Some date it back to the Chemelnetsky Rebellion and where there was crusades and many Jews died and there was only a very small core group of Jews from which the rest of the population of, of Europe subsequently developed. Uh, and that's why many of these genes that were found in that population are now found in, in today's population. Um, and uh, some of you may be familiar with the research into the gene for the Kohane, the, uh, the Kohane gene. <coughs> Someone had a, a wonderful idea. He, uh, a religious scientist was, uh, was in Shul one day. Uh, he works with genetics, and he saw Cohen going up for an aliyah, uh, the first aliyah. And he said to himself, I wonder if there's anything unique genetically about this Cohen, which we can trace back to their previous uh, ancestors. So he got this wonderful idea to test a number of Kohanim to see if there's anything specific in the gene which is associated with the Cohen. Um, and he tested many, many Kohanim, both Sephardic Kohanim and Ashkenazi Kohanim. Uh, how do you think he tested all these Kohanim? If you had to think of one place in the world where you'd find the largest gathering of Kohanim, Birchat Kohanim and Chalamoid at the Kotel. 
So they set up a booth there, and all they needed, they didn't need any blood samples, they just needed a cheek swab. And they set up a booth there with the Q-tips, and, uh, and they were able to obtain genetic information from hundreds and hundreds of Kohanim from across the world, Sephardi Kohanim, Ashkenazi Kohanim, and indeed they found that there was a high percentage of a certain section of gene which was found in all these Kohanim, not all of them, in a high percentage of the Kohanim, and they call it the Kohen modal haplotype, um, and, uh, and that, that's a fascinating study in and of itself. It was not 100% by any stretch. Uh, it does not mean that if you have a coin that gets called up for an aliyah that you have to have a little genetic stand at the bima and you've got to do a little finger stick to see if he's a real coin before he goes up before he goes up to the aliyah. Uh, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions about that genetic research into the Jewish genes. For example, why don't Levim have the same gene? They're, after all, from the same family. Uh, and also there's a, there's a tribe in, in Africa called the Lemba tribe, a black African tribe, which has a very high percentage of this particular gene, uh, and they claim to be from the lost tribes, lost ten tribes. Uh, so it's, it's a very a very interesting discipline. We're not going to delve into this kind of area of genetic, uh, genetic research. We'll leave that to the, to the geneticists. Do the Levim have a specific gene? Levim have not been found to have a specific genetic signature. But... Uh, but I, di I do want to tell you, by the way, that, that on the top of this page, I, my, uh, the title of this page is, is intentional. I, I did not label it Jewish genetic diseases. They are, they are not Jewish genetic diseases. They are genetic diseases which afflict the Jewish community. And while it may be true that, that genes affect us for specific conditions, they also affect other peoples, and, uh, many of these and there are certain conditions which are prevalent in other populations and other peoples, we, uh, we are very concerned, and we'll talk about a little later in the talk about the potential for discrimination. We're very concerned about the labeling of the Jews as being bearers of bad genes. It is simply, uh, it is simply not true. Uh, uh, While well, it's true we have genes that uh, bear disease, so, do, so does the rest of the world. We are an easier population to study by virtue of the fact that we have remained married within our religion. So it has made it easier for the geneticists to study our population, which is a testimony to the fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing, that we have remained largely marrying within the religion, obviously with exception. The question is, now that there's intermarriage, will that affect the, the genetic predisposition of uh, Jews in the future? Absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. It, I mean, aside from the havoc that it's wreaking in the Orthodox community about the definition of uh, who is a Jew, um, it, it's definitely going to change the genetic makeup of the, uh, of the population. And obviously, uh, there, there are gay, and we accept converts also. Uh, but but the, the definition of a Jew is not genetically dependent. Uh, no one, uh, I, 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 well, it's true they can find certain diseases. I don't think you'll be able to find the identity of Judaism in a genetic analysis. I have yet to find a scientist that can find the specific chromosome which defines Judaism. There is scientists, what, what, what uh, she's alluding to is the fact that some of these genes which were thought to be negative were subsequently found out to be protective for other diseases. So uh, that's, that's a study which is a, definitely a fruitful study. It's hard, to, it's hard to make that analysis for all genetic diseases. It definitely has not been done for all genetic diseases. It obviously shows that we may not know the whole picture. Uh, that's what it definitely shows. I'd like to just... just uh, right, right. So being a carrier of sickle cell prevents you from developing malaria. So that's, that's one, of the classic, uh, one of the classic examples of the benefit of having negative genes for, uh, in subsequent generations. Like I said, it hasn't been proven for many times. At certain times in certain places, right? But as an individual bearing that, 
it's hard to apply to the individual. So what, what uh, are the Jewish genetic diseases? How many are there? What are their names? So there is no list that's comprehensive, but the list that you have before you is the current, current list. <coughs> Mendelian disorders means that they're transmitted either by, uh, they're translated from genes from the father to your father and mother to the children. Uh, some of them are, are dominant, some of them are recessive. Some of these conditions you may have heard of, some of these conditions you may never have heard of. Bloom syndrome, Canavan's disease, cystic fibrosis you've obviously heard of, uh, Gaucher's disease, mucolipidosis, Neumann-Pick disease, um, Tay-Sachs, Tay-Sachs disease, which, is, uh, which we'll, we'll discuss from the, from the, uh, in the halachic literature, is something which many of us have heard of, um, but fortunately very few of us have actually seen any people afflicted with this disease, and we'll talk about why that is. Um, and this is also an interesting question, the Sephardim, are there Sephardic genetic diseases? People always say Ashkenazi Jewish genetic diseases. Most of these diseases, these aforementioned diseases, do not affect the Sephardic Jewish community. And that obviously has to do with the, the populations being separated for a large period of historical time. But there are some diseases which are associated with the Sephardic community, not, the same, not to the same magnitude and not the same number. Um, and there are, just to address the last question, um, there, there are many other people that have, uh, have these kinds of diseases. It's not just the Jewish community. So you have this young couple, Yaakov and Rachel. What are they supposed to do now? Are they supposed to test or are they not supposed to test? So we turn to the Chuva, we turn to page three, we turn to the response of Moshe Feinstein, Igris Moshe. And the question that was posed to him is, Should they test for Tesaks? Should a couple who's about to get married, or even before they date, and we can discuss this, should they test for Tesaks or should they not test for Tesaks? So what's the reasons to test? What's the reasons not to test? I mean, does anyone have a reason why, we, why, should, why should one not test for Tay-Sachs? Any reasons why you shouldn't test? So you may not want to dissolve the union. You have a young couple about to get married. Why, why ruin something? But we'll see about what the consequences are if they don't test. And we'll also talk about, apropos your point, about confidentiality and the requirement or prohibition, perhaps, of disclosing certain medical information to a potential spouse. But here you have this young couple that are engaged. Should they test? Should they not test? And Moshe Feinstein addresses some of these issues. And he says, And my opinion, or Moshe's opinion is, Even though a very small percentage of children are actually born with Tay-Sachs, You should walk in the ways of God, walk in, in wholeness or in, in simpleness in the ways of God, which means we generally live our lives, we don't pay too much attention to too many things. Uh, you could scrutinize every aspect of your daily behavior and you would never leave the house. Uh, you know, the likelihood of you getting hit by a car if you cross the street, the likelihood of uh, if you uh, uh, drive your car, the likelihood of being in an accident if you drive your car. All of these things that we do, every single thing that we do, is coupled with risk. So maybe you should just close your eyes, put on the blinders, and, and, and take your chances. Why increase my anxiety for all this? Let it be. I'll give my, I have pure faith in God. God is going to watch over me. Why should I bother testing? He says, even though you might, you might advance this theory, he says, Mikomakom, skipping to, I'm sorry, and, he, and just he says, Don't, don't think about the future. That's not your job. Your job is to live your life. Don't worry about what's going to happen to you. God's going to watch over you. Mikol Malkom, the next, the line four. Kevon she'aton ba'ofen ka'livdok. Since it's so easy to test yourself, it's a simple blood test. Yesh lo'dun she'im eno bo'dekes atzmo. 
That if you do not test yourself, you are depriving yourself of information which is easily accessible, which you can act upon, which can alleviate potential tremendous tragedy. If God forbid they both end up being carriers and they have a child that suffers from the disease Tay-Sex, a tremendous amount of tsar and anguish for, for parents who have such a child, not to mention the anguish of the child, his or herself. Um, it is appropriate for somebody who's about to get married to indeed test themselves for these diseases, like the types of diseases called Tay-Sex. These, all, all these diseases are diseases... Now, and I'm going to state this now. The, um, we're going to be talking about a lot of issues of genetics. If what I'm saying is not clear, or if there's something that you don't understand about how genetics works, obviously this isn't a course in genetics, but it's essential that we understand the basics, please feel free to interject. All these diseases are... The people who hold... Who, who are now about to get engaged, they are checking for autosomal diseases, which means, and I shouldn't use the term diseases, it's really an autosomal chromosome. These people are not afflicted with a the disease. They're healthy. But they carry a gene that if this gene combines with another gene of their spouse, there is a chance that the child could develop the disease. But in order for the child to develop the disease in recessive conditions, as it's called, they have to get the gene from both the mother and the father. You raise an important question, and the question is, how reliable is the testing? And that's a very important question. I don't want to minimize it, but I'm going to assume for our discussion that, that the testing is accurate, because that obviously factors in. And that factors into all types of screening testing, not only Jewish genetic diseases, but testing for everything that doctors want to test you for. Um, you know, testing for the likelihood of disease or doing your x-ray screening or, uh, you know, there's, there's always what's called false positives and false negatives. There are cases where your test result will be negative, you don't have the problem, but indeed you do. And there are test results that will be positive, but you don't have the disease. So nothing is foolproof. So this is an extremely important issue, not to be minimized, but for our discussion we're assuming that the testing is accurate. And in many of the cases, genetics specifically, the testing is highly, highly accurate. And you raise, you raise an excellent question, an excellent point. Um, genetic diseases are a spectrum. All diseases are a spectrum. There are some diseases that are fatal. There are some diseases uh, that are not fatal. And there are some diseases that, uh, that may, uh, even, even within the world of genetics, and, I, and, and we're simplifying here, there are some diseases that even if you carry the genes for the disease, you may not ever develop the disease. And if you develop the disease, you may develop a mild form or a severe form. There's a lot of variability, and in many cases, there's no way to predict. In certain genetic conditions like Tay-Sachs, if you develop those, if you have Tay-Sachs, you have the genes, you will absolutely develop the disease, and you will almost uni universally, with very, very few, few exceptions in the history of Tay-Sachs, um, the child will tragically die usually by four, five, six years old. So there's a huge spectrum of diseases, and that spectrum is extremely important in the application of halacha to these testings also. Which diseases should be tested for? Maybe perhaps only diseases where it's 100% certain that if they develop the, the uh, if they receive the genes, they will get the disease, and maybe only diseases where if they get the disease, it's 100% fatal. But all these where, where it's gray if they'll get the disease, or these diseases where it might afflict them in minor fashions, or they could have relatively normal lives, 
living with the disease, maybe we shouldn't test for all these kinds of things. And that, that is a question which is not going to go away. That's a question which is going to get stronger and stronger as the Human Genome Project continues to describe genes for every aspect of disease and, and human conditions. Um, so the, the question is, you know, that the, uh, the, 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 uh, the women are turning to the men and said, you know, Paro is decreeing that just the, the boys should be killed by you not having any children. You're, you're decreeing that both the boys and the girls will be killed, in essence, or prevented from living. Uh, does that have an impact on things? Um, it, it, uh, it definitely has an impact. Definitely has an impact. And the impact would be if someone knows that they're carriers for genetic disease, does that prevent them from fulfilling the obligation to be fruitful and multiply? Now, obviously, Mitzrayim Paro decreed on the, on the males, but let's say you have a couple that knows for certain that they have a very terrible gene that if their child gets it, the child's going to die. Does that mean they should decree, I'm not going to have any children at all? Because there's a one in four chance that the child will be afflicted, but there's a three in four chance the child won't be afflicted. So does that now release your obligation to be fruitful and multiply? The answer is no. Absolutely does not. It's not your decision to make. You have the obligation to be fruitful and multiply. You know, if God forbid the child is afflicted with disease, there's a reason why the child is afflicted with the disease. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't take opportunities, which exactly what this course is about, to prevent that disease if we can? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. And that's precisely what we're going to be talking about. Can we make interventions which will prevent the development of certain disease in our having children? And that's, the, and that's what we'll talk about as, as the, this afternoon evolves. So you have an article here from the, uh, from the Jerusalem Post, March 6, 2003, which is, uh, could have taken it from a number of different sources. It's a very nice article which describes the, uh, the history of Doria Shorim. It's on page 3. Um, uh, having a healthy baby who needs to be fed, dressed, and played, played with is a blessing, but there's no greater nightmare than having to care for a baby whose cruel fate, death from an incurable and debilitating inherited disease like Tay-Sachs or Canavans, has been sealed. And what they go on to describe is the development of, a, of an organization called Doria Sharim, which addresses itself specifically to couples like Jacob and uh, Rachel, to Yaakov and Rachel. These kinds of couples, couples that are thinking about getting married, and are testing to see if they are the bearers of the disease. <coughs> Doria Shorim was founded, and this is just, I mean, you read this paragraph, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it, it just has profound impact. It was founded by, Rabbi, by New York Rabbi Joseph Eckstein, whose wife gave birth to four Tay-Sachs children, one after another, all of whom died before the age of six. And they still went on to have more children, which, is, which relates to your comment. They could have very easily said, and I don't think anybody would have ever faulted them for saying enough is enough, but they continued to have children subsequently. Normal? Yes, yes, normal children. But in each case, and here, this is the genetic facts also, it's statistical probabilities, there's a one in four chance with each delivery independently that the child will have the disease Tay-Sachs or any disease which is inherited in a recessive possession if both are carriers. Two of the four, the odds are 50%, right? Correct, correct. The odds are 50% that the children will be carriers for the disease. But the ones that are afflicted with the disease, it's a one in four, that those odds do not change with any subsequent delivery. So the fact that he had one child doesn't make it any different for the second child. The fact that he had three children with Tay-Sachs doesn't make it any less likely that the fourth child will have Tay-Sachs either. Every single one is, is a one in four chance. I'm sorry? We'll talk, we'll talk about that exactly. So the question was, is there testing for that in stages of pregnancy? Right now, we haven't reached that, that stage. We're now in the pre-marriage stage, testing for that the condition. Yes? Isn't it true that uh, gene expression 
is impacted by environmental factors, nutritional, toxicological. So the question is, isn't gene expression affected by environmental factors? Yes, it is, uh, but it depends which genes. Um, uh, so Tay-Sachs, for example, is not, is not affected by environment. If you have the disease Tay-Sachs, if you have both genes for Tay-Sachs, both recessive genes, you will develop the disease. It will almost invariably be fatal. There are many others which environment has a role. I don't profess, I'm, I, I, I should state, I'm not a geneticist. If any geneticists here, I'd, I'd be happy for, for any, any additional information, but, but, the, uh, but, but the answer is yes, it does, but it depends which genes, uh, and, and there's a high variability. So what she was mentioning is that the, they, they did a study of, uh, of mothers of children. They found that the mothers that gave birth to children of disability had, it was it more telomeres or, or change? Shorter telomeres. Shorter telomeres. Now I know, and I, and I don't profess to be an expert in this at all, but I know that, that the identity and the nature and the length of the telomeres is an area of extensive study right now, especially in the field of cloning. With, uh, with Dolly and that age might be related to the length of the telomeres. So for example, Dolly, you know, when you clone somebody uh, who's 50 years old, how do you, and that child is now born anew, does that child's biological clock start at zero or does it start at 50? Or does it start somewhere in between? And is that biological clock related to the telomeres and the length of the telomeres? That's something that scientists are, are exploring. She, yeah, and Dolly, by the way, died, and you, I don't want to uh, foreshadow the, uh, the cloning lecture, which you're going to do Dolly died prematurely of old age. She developed arthritis at a very early age because her genes were older than the genes of, of a normal newborn. But I'll leave, we'll leave cloning for, uh, for, uh, for Faggy Kaplan, who, is, uh, who will give a wonderful lecture. So what did, uh, what did he do? What did Rabbi Eckstein do as a result of this? He took, uh, he took things into his own hands and he started an organization called Doria Shorim. And what was the objective of Doria Shorim? The objective of Doria Shorim is to test people before they get married to see if they are carriers for a particular genetic disease. So initially when he started out, his objective was really to test for Tay-Sachs, but the testing has expanded significantly with our increase in genetic knowledge and our understanding that there are more genes which Jews have, which... Um, uh, which might be associated with diseases, which we, we can prevent by knowing in advance if each person of the, each spouse is in fact a carrier or not a carrier. So he devised a very curious, uh, a very interesting approach, and we can actually discuss if you believe this approach to be a, a valid approach or not. And I, and I actually used the Doria Sharm myself when I got married. Uh, my wife and I submitted testing to Doria Sharm at that time, uh, and what they do is each individual when they submit a blood test, they're given a number. It's completely anonymous. So there's no name whatsoever associated with the blood specimen. And, uh, and then, if there's a potential marital partner that you have, that person submits their number to Doria Sharim. Doria Sharim will then take the genetic makeup of number of the first number and the genetic makeup of the second number, and they'll, and they'll align them 
and see if they either or both are carriers for the, for the disease Tay-Sachs and, and all these other diseases. So if you both happen to be carriers, then Doria Sharon will tell you, we, we counsel against you marrying because you're both carriers for the disease Tay-Sachs. There's a one in four chance that your children will have the disease Tay-Sachs, which is a profound disease, which can, the child will almost invariably die as a result. <coughs> but if one is a carrier and one is not, they won't tell you anything. They will just say, it's okay for you to get married. And they won't tell you if you're a carrier or not a carrier. And the testing is anonymous. Now, why did this evolve this way? Part of the reason this evolved this way is because of the concern of stigma attached to a carrier. Now, let me ask you, is a carrier sick? If a carrier wears glasses, is that a stigma? So the, objectively, there should be absolutely no stigma attached to a carrier. But Dorya Sharm devised this out of the fear and the concern that people might use this knowledge in inappropriate ways. And Dorya Sharm targeted primarily, and Rabbi Eckstein himself is, is primarily is, is Hasidish, and he comes from, from the right-wing world. And it's primarily in a world which is not as scientifically literate. And there was fear that this knowledge might not be understood so well and might be misapplied and might lead to havoc in the Jewish community or in their shidduch world if, uh, if someone is found to be a carrier. So that's why they do not divulge the carrier status. They simply say, you are uh, either a match or not a match. And as we read down, down in the article, um, let's see, uh, the third paragraph, uh, or second paragraph from the bottom, some people say they have no Tay-Sachs or Canavans in their family, so they don't have to worry, notes Professor Edwin Kolodny. But this is not so, he adds. If they have a recessive gene, the disease will not present itself unless a member of the family marries and has children with another carrier. So don't be fooled into the belief that since you, ha you don't have Tay-Sachs in your family and don't remember anyone in your family having Tay-Sachs, that you could not have a Tay-Sachs child. You very well could. You could very well be a carrier. And I think the statistics for the carriers are one, one in 30, I believe, in the Ashkenazi Jewish community is a carrier for these Tay-Sachs. In the last paragraph, and he says, don't think it can't happen to you. Kaladny says the Kingsburg Jewish Medical Center in New York was built with a 16-bed facility only for Tay-Sachs children. Now, thanks to pre-marriage testing by Doria Shorim, it is completely empty. It is foolish, even criminal, for observant Jews not to undergo testing to prevent the birth of a child with these dreaded diseases. But is this the ideal way to test? Yes. First of all, in, in, when it comes to Jerusha, what they're doing is not like you and your wife did it when you knew you wanted to marry them. They're doing it that the girls and the boys in high school are asked to take these tests so that when they are fixed up, they're not fixed up with someone so they don't even have that first date if, if, they're, if they have this. But there's a religious family in Burakov, Bob uh, happens to be a physician, and they have had... I think there must have been at least eight or nine children. Most, I think there are four surviving. And they, all of the children, the Tay-Sachs children, were home. And they died at home. They, they were taken care of at home. Um, because there is a discrepancy as to once you know this, do you abort the pregnancy or not? Which right, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about exactly those issues. Um, and very serious issues. On the next page, page four of your handout, you have an excerpt from an article by Rabbi Blythe who, uh, who addresses 
the way Dory Yashorim does their testing, he doesn't mention them by name, but it's, it's obvious who he's, who he's referring to, um, the anonymity of the testing and the advantage of the anonymity and the concern for, for this uh, perpetuation of this notion of, uh, of stigma associated with being a carrier for a genetic disease without, without actually having the disease yourself. So if you, if you uh, and, I, and I just included a little longer um, selection if you want to read it, but we'll skip to the underlying section. Um, said, and he talks about the fact that people are afraid about being a carrier. He says, why then is misinformation regarding the Tay-Sex carrier state so widespread in our community? To our regret and harm, many persons who lack basic education in the sciences are lacking in even elementary knowledge with regard to genetics. They do not grasp the difference between dominant and recessive genes, cannot properly distinguish between incipient, incipient disease and propensity for disease, cannot distinguish between necessary causation and statistical probability, and sometimes they do not even understand that the demonstrated absence of a defective gene in a child assures that the genetic disease and propensity has not been inherited. What is the solution, the proper solution, the simplest solution, the solution with the most salutary cost-benefit ratio and certainly the most enlightened solution, is education. Hence, the desideratum for seminars like we have here at Drisha. The requisite information can readily be reduced to clear and concise language and disseminated both widely and repeatedly. Information saturation effectively dispels ignorance. And... Uh, and there are also practical ramifications. And I'm thinking about this now. My children are still relatively young. But I tested through Darius Shorim. I, w I wasn't really giving it much thought when I was testing. But now, when my children, Amir Sashem, will grow up to, to be marriageable age, they're going to have to be tested. Now, if I knew that I was not a carrier, and if I tested myself, and I tested my wife, and she's not a carrier, there is no reason to test my children. My children are simply re released from this in incredibly complex issue. And I, don't, I also don't have to worry about the possibility of my children marrying a subsequent carrier. On the other hand, if I knew that, that one of us was a carrier, then I would be concerned. And, I, I, and I'd be much more aggressive and vigilant about my children uh, not marrying carriers. But if I knew, then it would end the testing in our family subsequently. My, all generations wouldn't have to subsequently test. With, with, uh, with Dar Yasharim, you have to test every single generation every time. So it, it, it increases the requirements for testing. In addition, it's, it's also not cost effective to do that. Well, also, given the way they do it, in the first match, that's the first time you do it, right? Shit up doesn't work because you both happen to be carried. Mm -hmm. Then that, that you have to be tested every single potential. Correct. That's also true. That's also true. Although, no, no, no. So you don't have to be retested. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Once it's, once it's in the bank, they have it. They have it. But what I will tell you is that, is that since they're adding new genetic diseases, so my wife was tested earlier, it had to be retested because they added more to the panel. But once they have it in the bank, then, then, then they have it in perpetuity. Uh, and they can retest, they, theoretically, they could retest that specimen. By the way, and this, I'm not going to get into this, this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating issue. Um, Doria Shorim has thousands, if not tens of thousands of specimens of blood from, from, uh, from Ashkenazi Jews. Imagine the opportunities for genetic research from this database. Imagine. And I will tell you that, that, uh, that they are collaborating with a number of scientists, and the gene from, for familial dysautonomia, which was only recently described, was actually identified from research from the blood from Doria Shorim's databank. Now, issues which, which are, are for another forum, um, do you need to give consent 
when you go to Dar Yasharim that your blood will ultimately be used for research purposes. If Dar Yasharim finds that your blood has something unique, which is the magical cure for a subsequent disease, which they market, can, can you come back to them and say, I want to financially benefit from that specimen that you drew from me? These, these are things which are not hypotheticals. These are real questions. I mean, there are cases of people donating blood and the scientists ultimately used extracts from their blood or from their organ biopsy to produce uh, cures for disease and marketed them and made millions of dollars. And the person comes back and says, this is my spleen that you got this cure from. I should, I should deserve some of the money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if a potential couple is told they're not compatible, they don't know if they're not compatible for uh, caravans or tay sacks or mm -hmm. anything like that. They're just told they're not compatible. You know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. They, they, are they told? You're not. They're not told which disease they're not compatible for. See that? Okay, that's even more problematic because some of these diseases are, are fatal, some are not fatal. Some You talk about the torsion dystonia, for example. I mean, that's... Uh, Oh, they took the gauchets off, right? Because gauchets, you can have people who can live a normal life with gauchets, and now gauchets can be treated. This is something, by the way, and, and, I, and I, I apologize for those of you who are here this morning for not mentioning it this morning. It really wasn't so relevant, but, but it's so true, more so in this day than ever before, um, that when you address these things from a halakhic perspective, you have to revisit the scientific information at the time the question is asked because the scientific information is continually changing, literally from day to day. So a question that was asked a year ago, and you have a psaq from a, a prominent rabbi, while, while the legal, uh, legal conclusion may indeed be applicable, you better revisit the medical information and make sure that the medical information that he had is the same medical information now. And if it's not, you may have to reinterpret the question accordingly. So it is exceedingly important that a dialogue be kept between rabbis and physicians, and that there be, a, uh, uh, there be ongoing discussion and sharing of information and education, like, uh, like Rabbi Blythe mentioned. But I, I, mean, I just want to take an informal... So yeah, Ray. What is your sense of that taking place right now? Yeah, uh, now, obviously, I, I wish it were applicable to all rabbis making decisions about these issues. I, I cannot say that it is. But on, on the higher levels, on the, on the rabbinic sages in Israel that are making these kinds of decisions, there is absolutely no question that they are in constant dialogue with the, the greatest scientific authorities on whatever topic it is that they're dealing with. And Rav Moshe Feinstein, the Hitzadik of Racha, was famous for, for obtaining as much information. He sat with physicians for hours before he passed into any medical issue, made sure he was well-versed in whatever the medical information was. And, and we talked about in the, in the, in the first session, I mean, you cannot expect every rabbi to be literate in the field of science. It's, a, it's an impossibility. I mean, the world of halacha, they spend their lives in halacha. They can't necessarily know all the, uh, the nuance, nuances and intricacies of science. But if they're poskening something, I assure you they're highly intelligent and intelligent enough to understand. If a scientist explains it to them, they'll be able to integrate the information and apply it in an appropriate way to, uh, to make sure that the law is decided accordingly. Yes. Right, but, but I will, even though, even though you raise a very important, a very important point, 
it's not necessarily modern versus non-modern. Uh, that is definitely a distinction and a major distinction, um, but it, it also depends on, you know, it, just like you go to a different judge at a different time, you're going to get a different, uh, a different decision. You go to... Yeah, yeah. Also, it depends on the t on the time, but but unfortunately, or the you know, getting back to your question, uh, I don't think all all the rabbis are are necessarily availing themselves of the information all the time. But it is clearly going in in a much much better direction. There, there, and now the information is so easily accessible, um, and information is so widely disseminated disseminated that uh, that it's it's much much better. It still still needs needs uh, needs improvement. Yes, both both of you actually. There's on page one of the Times, I think it's either Shabbat or Sunday, they had this article on Neiman Pick. Mm -hmm. uh, but they did not use the opportunity to put in a squib about genetic testing. Ah, uh, they should have, yeah. A very long article, devastating. Should write a letter, actually, yeah. Yeah, Yes. What has the knowledge of a genetic disorder? The question is, if one has a, a, a uh, either an existing uh, condition or a carrier of a condition that that uh, of genetic origin, do they have an obligation to reveal it to a potential spouse? And that is something that we will talk about extensively in a, in a later section of this uh, of this afternoon's talk. Uh, confidentiality and specifically disclosure of genetic information to a potential spouse. Yes. Uh, so the, the comment was that uh, an excellent pro program which blends the science and the halacha is the program of the Yoatzot at Nishmat, which I think uh, Mrs. Zimmerman, whose daughter is one of those, uh, the, the very first, I believe, or in the first graduating class of Yoatzot, I, I trust she will affirm that uh, comment. <laughs> So let, let me just take an informal poll, by the way, and I'm, I'm curious. How many what, what stage do you think people should test? Do you think they should be testing in high school? Do you think they should be testing in college? Do you think they should test before they're engaged? Do you think they should wait to be engaged to be tested? I mean, yeah. But the, the question is, I mean, a number, number of people said high school, which I think uh, needs to be adolescence or premarital age, but how, you know, we talk about the stigma of carrier. We are adults. We can understand that information. Can a high school student integrate that information? Can they? Can they? I mean, I'm asking. I'm not, I'm not saying that they can't. I'm just saying, is that something? And... Did you want you want them walking around before they ask a date? You know your high school uh, son on the on the phone. You know before they call up the girl for the date. You know are you a carrier for uh, for Tay Are you a carrier for so and so? Uh, it's not it's not a simple thing. No, that's the question. Do you test them? And if you t if they test positive, do you share that information with them? Do they need to know that information? <coughs> but I will tell you that testing absolutely. But but testing once you're engaged can be extraordinarily stressful. You want one last comment in the back, yeah.
Yeah, no, the question was, or the comment was, that this young woman, her mother is a carrier for Tay-Sachs, and she hasn't tested herself and doesn't know if she's, if she's a carrier or not. Now, I'm not going to prevail upon you personally, obviously, and it is absolutely personal decision, but we'll see, you'll see the importance and at least give you some thought about whether you should test you know, prior to, uh, to engaging in any uh, you know, in further dating activity about, uh, about the importance of being tested. Did they offer you testing in high school? No, they did not. But it's a question of stages. And obviously, when you're just about to get married, you might think harder about it. I mean, when you're still dating, you may, it may not be so... Uh, the concept of testing may be a pretty daunting one. And I'm, and I'm not minimizing that. It's, a, it's, it's important. I thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, and, it, and it's an important decision. And you realize that what we're talking about is real life. Affects real people and affects people, a lot of people all across our community. I actually apologize. I'm going to hold off on, on the comments on this for now. We'll, uh, we'll just want to move forward a little bit. Um, we now turn the page I'm just thinking in terms of uh, strategizing for breaks would you like to take a break now or move forward a little bit move forward a little bit okay for those of you who need to take a break if you'll do for you, so we'll, move, we'll, we'll take a break in the, in the, after our next uh, segment so Yaakov and Rachel tested and lo and behold they're found to both be carriers for the disease Tay-Sachs and Doria Shorim very strongly discourages them from getting married to each other. And they said, if you get married, there's a very strong chance, a one in four chance, your child will have a have Tay-Sachs disease. So Yaakov and Rachel say, I'm sorry, we've already fallen in love with each other. We're willing to deal with the consequences. We're going to get married anyway. So they get married. Now, two years later, Rachel is pregnant. And now she remembers that advice that Doria Shorin gave her. And she is thinking to herself, is this child that I am now carrying afflicted with Tay-Sachs or not? And if it is, is there anything that I can do about it? So this brings us to page five of our handout. Into the whole world of prenatal testing. Prenatal testing is testing for a pregnant woman for possible disease in the child that she is carrying. Now, there are different forms of prenatal testing. There's prenatal ultrasound, and I'm not going to read through these. These are for your information. Ultrasound is a non-invasive test. It allows the sonographer, allows the physician to actually see a picture of the child. They now have three- and four-dimensional ultrasound. You can actually go to your local mall and, and probably get a picture of the baby. <laughs> four-dimensional uh, picture of your baby. That's, we can talk about that another time. The, uh, and, and ultrasound is a very important screening test uh, to see physical abnormalities in the child. They're possible in the, in the hands of an experienced practitioner. They can actually see certain indications which might uh, give an idea of uh, the presence of Down syndrome. Uh, and, uh, and now pretty much routinely most women in their prenatal testing are receiving at least one if not two ultrasounds. It is extremely rare for someone to go from, uh, from conception through to birth without having at least an ultrasound prior. Yes? Uh, I, I'd like to call your attention to the last sentence in the um, first paragraph. When there are people who are 45 and 50 who were who underwent Sonography, there will, then that sense is which, which sense is that? Studies have shown that ultrasound is completely safe. 
Oh, I see. Okay. Point, point well taken. Point well taken. That's true for all the technology that we have that we, don't, we just don't know. We just don't know. And we, it, it, would re, it would be extremely difficult to, to have a study to show whether it's... it's no, but, but, since, but since every single child is getting an ultrasound, it's going to be hard to figure out whose who's, who's adverse consequences result of the ultrasound or not. But... but Let's, let's just take a very recent example, the, uh, the case of, uh, of Vioxx and Celebrex. Uh, it, obviously, the, the information came here a little sooner than the 30, 40 years, fortunately. Um, but you know, it's a drug that was released on the market and for whatever reasons was prescribed. I prescribed it myself many times uh, to millions and millions of people throughout the country. And it's now known, after a number of years, that, uh, that there may be uh, heart effects which are as a result of taking the medicine. That's in everything in everything that we prescribe as physicians, in every research area that we endeavor into, there's always potential for complications. We do the best we can. We hope that it's safe, put it out on the market, and sometimes we find out in retrospect that it's not. Um, other forms of prenatal screening include blood testing, uh, AFP screening, which is in the middle of the handout, alpha-fetoprotein testing, um, which is simply blood testing. But if this blood testing is positive, and we talked about before, how testing, some testing is more accurate than other forms of testing. This is not a 100% accuracy test by any stretch. If, if, and it's a balance of certain, uh, certain hormonal levels which they find in the blood, and based on that delicate balance, they can figure out if there's a likelihood that your child will have one of two conditions, either Down syndrome or spina bifida, which is an anatomical uh, condition of the spine. Um, it is not 100%, meaning that if you test positive, it is absolutely not 100% that the child will have either of these disorders. And the converse is also true. If you test negative, it is not an uh, insurance that the child will not have these disorders. And that's what makes these particularly complex. Now, I, I, I can't verify the statistics of this paragraph. It says only about 1 in 30 of those with a positive result actually have a problem. I, I can't verify those statistics, but, but it's definitely not 100% of the people far, far from it. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, I when you put in spina bifida, I didn't know spina bifida was genetic. Spina bifida, I, from what I understood, has to do with a woman's folic acid level to a certain degree. If folic acid can and affect the presence of spina bifida. Um, but here we're talking about the, pre the fetus is actually developing that condition. They can find out if this fetus has this condition based on those hormonal load levels. So it's not a genetic test for subsequent generations. There is a difference genetic. Right, right, that's true, that's true. And the third one, which is more relevant to us, yes. Have neither. Um, it's funny because when when I read that, not only is it is it it's it's just a bizarre way to phrase it, but also I think what they're tr they're just trying to restate the statistic of one in thirty in a percentage in in the converse percentage fashion to give you an appreciation of the fact that. Don't worry about it. If you test positive, it's not 100% that you're going to have, the child is going to have this condition. But 1 in 30 is not, you know, 95%. <laughs> right, right, right. And so it's... it's we, we, I will tell you from personal experience, we didn't test. We, we, just, we just refused the AFP test. I, I know of many cases where women 
tested and were found to be positive wreaked tremendous, uh, tremendous emotional, psychological havoc, and thankfully there was no problem whatsoever. So it's, it's, a, big, it's, a, it's a problem. It's an issue. And, and, uh, and, uh, and we're going to talk about other, other things that can be done and other forms of testing, but those are, are complex forms of testing, which you could argue maybe not to present the information to people if, if you don't have, uh, have enough statistics to, to back it up. But, but that's what's offered in medicine today. And the third form of test, which is more relevant to our couple, Yaakov and Rachel, is amniocentesis and chorionic villus sampling. So all these others, I mean, or AFP screening, is not something which, which takes material directly from the fetus. It's, it's a blood testing. So there's an indirect correlation between the positivity of that test and the likelihood of disease in the fetus. But amniocentesis is removing fluid from the amniotic fluid, and chorionic villus sampling is actually taking both of these, inserting a needle into different parts and extracting tissue for analysis. So you actually have material from either the fluid around the fetus or from the uh, material connected to the fetus where you can do real genetic testing and determine with relative certainty if the fetus is afflicted with disease or not afflicted with disease. And they actually are at different uh, gestational ages, and they each are, are associated with certain complications of, of spontaneous miscarriage if you perform the, uh, perform the procedures. Um, and, and so Yaakov and Rachel are debating <coughs> whether they can, A, undergo this testing, and B, if they find that the baby is afflicted with Tay-Sachs, can they act on it and perform an, and have an abortion? Yes. Correct. Exactly, and that's precisely what we're going to discuss. What we'll do is we'll discuss. We'll do the next page of sources, and then we'll we'll take a break. So if you turn to page six. You have, you have two opposing positions. The, uh, what I've outlined here is two polar extreme positions about the approach to this issue. There's a wealth of literature on this issue, and there's a lot of positions that are in between these pol two polar extremes, but for illustrative purposes, I've chosen the two polar extremes. Position number one is espoused by, by Rev. Moshe Feinstein in Igros Moshe. And the question that was posed to him in the top of page six can you check the status of a fetus if they bear a disease from which they will invariably die, i.e. Tay-Sachs, um, by, by performing amniocentesis, by removing fluid to see if, 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 uh, if, the, uh, if the child is affected with disease. Um, skipping to the third line, when a woman is pregnant for 12 weeks, they can remove fluid, etc., etc. And he describes, in essence, the procedure of, of amniocentesis. Skipping to the underlying section, um, since, as is his position, abortion under any circumstances is prohibited, and we'll talk about other positions in a minute, and even if one finds out from this test with 100% certainty that this child indeed has Tay-Sachs disease, and the child will not live longer than a few years, 
and the child will be sick the entire time. And the child will have no awareness or no intellect whatsoever. And, and the family will have, to, uh, will have to care for him and it will involve a tremendous amount of resources. Um, even more so than they can handle. And you, can, you would even be concerned that the mother might get sick as a result and might, and might get emotionally ill as a result. Despite all of that, he does not allow abortion under these circumstances. Because the prohibition of abortion applies to this fetus just like it applies to a fetus who is complete and healthy and has absolutely no deficiencies whatsoever. <laughs> so the question is, does he permit abortion to save a life? The answer is yes, he permits abortion to save a life because the Mishnah explicitly says that you're allowed and they obligated to, to, to perform an abortion to save the life of a woman. And the Mishnah in Olo says, I shall leave it for later on, we'll talk about it with stem cell research. And just to complete the notes, the, the Yishikras Moshe, just one moment, I'll complete this. Everything is divine from above. One should not attempt to obtain too much information and to try and run away or hide from punishment that God has for you. Because God has many messengers. One should accept with love everything that God divines. Said God willing, she should give birth to a uh, to a healthy child. Now, based on his position on abortion, if Moshe says, since abortion is not countenanced under any circumstances, excluding the health of the mother, at any stage of pregnancy, which we'll talk about in a minute. He therefore maintains that performing the amniocentesis is pointless. Now one could argue, and furthermore, the amniocentesis itself is somewhat dangerous. So if, in his eyes, again, based on this one position, you cannot act on the information, and, and abortion is prohibited even in a case of Tay-Sachs, to perform the amniocentesis would not be advised. Now one could argue, and this is an arguable point, that someone even who refuses to abort, who gains the information from the amniocentesis, might be significantly comforted and could affect the woman psychologically, or even knowing that the child, even knowing that the child does have Tay-Sachs, even knowing the negative information, could also be in a certain sense comforting to know that information. One could argue for amniocentesis, but that that is indeed a debatable point. But we shift to the other end of the spectrum completely. <coughs> And, and that is the Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg. Ba'asher al-Kain kasher gilisi da'ati mirosh. Nir l'fiyani as da'ati, according to my opinion, the Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg, is still alive, living in Yerushalayim today. V'yesh lehatir l'kigom nidonenu, in this case of Tay-Sachs, he's referring specifically to Tay-Sachs, l'sader hafsoka sirayon, to perform an abortion, if it is determined with certitude that the child is, is afflicted with a disease, Tay-Sachs. And this is the line, which is an extraordinary line, to give you appreciation of the polar extreme. 
into the seventh month of pregnancy. He allowed for abortion in a case of Tay-Sex. Assuming that the abortion itself will be performed without much danger to the mother. So since he allows abortion in these circumstances, he obviously permits the performance of the amniocentesis in order to, to facilitate the obtaining of the information, which according to him can be acted upon. So his, and, and, I, and I apologize if you're not getting into this because this will take us somewhat afield. The whole issue of abortion is a major machlokas, a major debate amongst rabbinic authorities, and there are varying positions about what exactly the prohibition of abortion is. It is by no means agreed upon. So if Moshe Feinstein, for example, believes that abortion is akin to homicide, while it is not exactly analogous, so for example, if you perform an abortion, you can't be sentenced to death in a court of Jewish law. He believes it is at least analogous to abortion, to, to homicide. That's why he doesn't allow it in the case of a, of a debilitated fetus, because it's irrelevant to him. If it's homicide, it's like homicide. Tzitzeliezer, however, aligns himself with other rabbinic authorities who don't believe that abortion is homicide, believe it could be a, fo- a form of wounding, could be a form of wasting, the, of destruction of the reproductive seed, could be an obligation of preservation of, of future life, a whole host of different things. But it, it is by no means agreed upon what exactly the prohibition of abortion is, and based on your position, uh, the chips would fall differently about the permissibility of performing abortions in a whole variety of circumstances. Yes? Um, no, so he, he, was, he mentioned it, but he would not be concerned about mental health of the mother. If the mother's... It would not change a thing. would not change a thing. Now, if the mother's health was, if the mother's life was at risk, that it, then it would change. That's a wholly different case. <coughs> Impact of the rest of the family does not bear on his decision at all. Now, I will tell you, I, and, and this is extremely important. This, this is Moshe Feinstein who's stating a position. You may not agree with this position, and I respect, I respect your right not to agree with that position. But this is a position which comes from from the rich tradition of halacha, and his statement should not be minimized also. It's like, now obviously, if we want to prevent disease, we do the best we can to prevent disease, but in his eyes, the prevention of disease flies in the face of, of, a, of, a, uh, of an obligation or a prohibition in Jewish law, then, then you simply cannot do it. And this notion, this is also important to realize, there are many people who have children who have many, many different diseases. Um, and the, uh, you know, the Haas concert is coming up in, uh, in a few weeks. And for those of you, I'm not, I'm not personally affiliated with Haas, but I know just very minimally that the kinds of work that they do and the things that they do, it's just extraordinary. The impact of the, chi- of the child with the disease can simply not be assessed. Now, wh- what we do is we try and prevent the development of, of this disease, but if children are born with a disease, you don't know what God has in mind. You really don't know what God has in mind. You don't know the impact of that family subsequently, be it positive, be it negative. You don't know the impact of that child on the parents, the impact of the child on subsequent sim- siblings. It's not for us to make those kinds of decisions, assuming that it's, that it's against law. Now, those who, who maintain that it isn't against halacha, like the Tzitzeliezer, would say, if halacha allows it, I can prevent the disease, I can prevent the disease, I should try and prevent the disease. But this would be an argument, you have to be careful, like the, the Americans with disabilities, they're very concerned, and, and, and rightfully so, that our whole endeavor about testing for genetics will re- render them a, a population which is going to be ostracized and put out on a separate island. You know, who's, you know, who's to say that if we can't prevent for all these diseases, then they're going to turn around and say, if you do have a child with debility, God forbid they should say this, 
Why did you do this? You could have prevented this. And they look straight in the face of the child. You could have prevented the birth of this child. This child is still a nephesh. This child is still somebody which, which, we all, which, which is cherished in the eyes of the law, which has tremendous value, which has infinite value. You can't, you, can't, you can't take the life of that child, God forbid. That child has the same status as everybody sitting in this room. So it's very, very important to appreciate that in this kind of discussion. We, talk, we sometimes dissociate emotionally. We sometimes dissociate theologically, philosophically. We talk about the halacha, which is extremely important. But there are things that we don't see and we don't understand. We think we understand, but we really don't. Yes? So the, the question is, isn't Shalom Bayi something we have to consider? Yes, Shalom Bayi is something we have to consider. And all these things factor into the decision-making. But if according to Moshe, the halacha is that it's tantamount to murder, then Shalom Bayi does not supersede that. Excellent point. Why, why are you running from punishment? So then why, why take Tylenol? Seriously, why take Tylenol? And the truth is, I mean, uh, uh, Rabbi Helfgott, Natty Helfgott, is going to be talking about end-of-life issues tomorrow. This is a theological consideration. And the, the same Tzitzeliezer, by the way, says, says at the end of life that people should, should, should welcome suffering and welcome punishment because theologically, the punishment that we receive in this world will diminish our punishment and increase our reward in, in the world to come. So does that mean that we should never take medicines we should always suffer? No, no. It's, it's, and it's a very delicate balance. Still, physicians cure pain or, or treat pain, and palliation is very important, and the cure of disease is very important. Um, I actually apologize. I, I hold the questions for now. I'm just going to finish this little segment. We'll take a, take a break for a few minutes. You can, ask the, you can ask the questions at the break. You can ask the questions at the break. I apologize. So the Tzitzel, the answer says, I also need a break from my throat, which I also apologize. Um, <clears throat> and in another chuva where, where he extends it to another case, um, Tzitz Eliezer was asked in the last in the uh, in the middle of your handout doing amniocentesis for a case of Down syndrome and whether one could abort in a case of Down syndrome. Now, here's an issue that we addressed briefly before um, about their conditions where you, which are universally uh, fatal uh, Tay-Sachs at a very young age. But Down syndrome is not a fatal disease, and there's a tremendous spectrum of Down syndrome. And at the half concert, there will be a number of people who have Down syndrome of all spectrums from very severe disease to very mild disease that lead, lead relatively normal lives. So if you allow abortion for Tay-Sachs, are you going to allow abortion for, for Down syndrome? Are you going to make a distinction? If you're going to make a distinction, on what basis are you going to make a distinction? So the Tzitzel, as it says, he actually says in this case <coughs> that it, he permitted in this one specific case for abortion to be performed for Down syndrome. I'm not saying that everybody agrees with this, and many people would disagree with this. And he actually says, and this, in, in the bold, a little later on in the handout, in, in the second paragraph in the bottom, um, Al-Kain, and, and, I, and I said specifically, in this specific circumstance, Al-Kain, in a case of, of, of mongoloidism, is the old term for Down syndrome. That this does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that every single couple that is found to have a child with, with, uh, with Down syndrome should be given a, a permission to, to perform an abortion. He says every single case has to be analyzed by a competent rabbi, knowing the family, knowing the situation, knowing what the issues are. Um, and while he did allow it in this one circumstance, he would not generalize it uniformly to absolutely everybody. And this applies for everything we discussed today. 
And everything you will hear from this podium for the next four days, anytime somebody tells you a sock, that sock is that one case and that one case only. You are forbidden to generalize this to any other case. Every single case has to be presented to, the, to a competent authority, and every single case will be, will be addressed accordingly. And you will find that two cases that look as identical as two drops of water will yield two diametrically opposed decisions, even from the same rabbi. So you have to understand there's much more to the mechanics of halacha uh, than meets the eye. So we'll take a break here, and we'll move on to the next, uh, to the next section. So as, uh, as our young couple, Rachel and Leah, are still... Rachel and... I'm sorry. That's another lecture. Yaakov and Rachel are uh, embroiled in their decision-making. There's yet another factor that factors in. So issue number one for them was, should they perform amniocentesis? Should they not perform amniocentesis? A subcategory of this discussion relates to the different uh, gestational ages of the fetus. And some of you may be familiar, as we turn to page 7, I'm actually going to curtail the, the sources on this, just in the interest of time. Um, curtail reading inside, actually. Um, that there is a distinction in Talmudic literature between different gestational ages. And one of those important distinctions that's relevant for our discussion, and it'll be more relevant in the discussion on, on stem cell research uh, uh, in, in just a short while, is the, uh, is the distinction between 40 days gestation, before 40 days gestation, and after 40 days gestation. So one such case is the, is the first source in your handout where the Gemara says, Hamapelas liyomem eno chasheshesh levlad. So the halacha is, yes? As far as the Talmud is concerned, it's from conception, not from last menstrual period. So the, the, and that's an important distinction, which I'm not going to get into, but it but, uh, should, should be stated, that the number of weeks that the clinician, your obstetrician, will tell you is two weeks from your last menstrual period, which is actually different than weeks from conception. Um, so the, the Talmud says that if a woman has a spontaneous miscarriage, the law is that if the miscarriage is at a later de developmental age, the, um, the woman has to sit both the days of purity and impurity. Now, at the very beginning, actually, of our first session, for those of you who were with us in the first session, when we said, Isha ki tazria, when a woman gives forth her zera and she gives birth to a male child, it is that in that section of the Torah that, that the laws of purity and impurity um, related to childbirth are discussed. So if a woman gives birth to a male child, there are seven days of impurity and, uh, and 33 days of, uh, of impurity. Um, and if for a female child, all the numbers are doubled. It's 14 days and, and, uh, and 66 uh, days. Um, is there a biological reason? Uh, is there a biological reason for that distinction? One of the Tanoim, one of the, one of the rabbis in the Gemara, in the Mishnah, does state a, a biological distinction based on, on understanding of that time. Uh, and says that the, according to what was then understood, the male children were embryologically developed in 40 days and the female children were embryologically developed in 80 days. And that is why that there, there is a, a doubling of the total period of purity and impurity for the female. The total of the purity and impurity for the, for the male child is indeed 40 days, the 7 and the 33, and the total number for the female 
is, is double that, is 80. Uh, and and the, the Tosefta actually recounts an experiment that was performed, not, not under Jewish auspices, and I'm sure you would never have passed uh, muster of the FDA today or your local ethics committee where Cleopatra had a number of her maidservants inseminated, not artificially inseminated, naturally inseminated, and, and sacrificed them at different stages, at uh, 40 days and 80 days, in order to ascertain whether indeed there was different embryological development of the male fetus and the female fetus. Um, the results were that um, it was actually different accounts. In, w in one account, they were the same. They both developed at 40 days. In one account, they were developed 40 and developed 80 days. Um, but be that as it may, the, uh, there are other philosophical reasons why, why it might be doubled for the woman. But So if a woman has a miscarriage and doesn't know the, the sex of the child, the assumption is that it, it could have been a female child and she should sit the days of purity and impurity, which are longer for the, for the, lo the longer period, had it been a female. But the, the, Tom, the Mishnah says, I'm a palace of men in a chasheshes levlad. But if a woman has a miscarriage earlier than 40 days gestation, she doesn't have to be concerned that she had a child at all. And why is that? Because the Gemara says here in many other places, because less, a, a child of less than 40 days gestational age is considered maya be'alma. And that term literally means mere water. So the question is, what halachic ramifications do these statements in the Talmud have? Do they have practical halachic ramifications to the extent that abortion would indeed be less objectionable at 40 days gestational age than afterwards, or not? Ramosha Feinstein, for example, makes no distinction between the pre-40-day period and the post-40-day period. I'm just laying out some of the issues, some of the sources which, which are actually in front of you on the page. Etzitz Eliezer does make a distinction um, and says that it is preferable if one is going to perform an abortion to try and do so before the 40-day period, even though he himself allowed up to the seventh month for cases of Tay-Sachs, he still would find it preferable halachically if the abortion would be done prior to the 40-day period. Uh, Rav Zilberstein, a prominent uh, rabbinic authority in B'nai Brach, also dis mentions that less than 40 days, it might be a lesser prohibition, perhaps a rabbinic prohibition as opposed to a biblical prohibition. So there is what to talk about for this 40-day distinction, and here it could have practical ramifications, as is evidenced by this article which appeared in the uh, American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in your handout on page 7, the first English entry, <laughs> Procedural Risks Versus Theology, Chronic Villas Sampling for Orthodox Jews at Less Than Eight Weeks of Gestation. Page seven, page seven. So they've been uh, back and forth on these articles, and the article says, according to Orthodox Jewish tradition, abortion is only permitted before 40 days post-conception. That is wrong, actually, on all counts. Um, not everybody agrees to abortion even before 40 days or even after 40 days and uh, it is definitely not agreed upon. Uh, and there, as we mentioned, there are some who would find it less objectionable. It is definitely not permitted without exception. That's definitely not the case. Um, so they tried to find if they could perform this prenatal testing, chorionic villa sampling, at an age, gestational age, which would come under that wire of 40 days. And it, it is a complex thing. It's, it's un unusual that it can be done in Israel. They're particular about it, and I know that there are people that are trying to get the testing done under 40 days, so if there is a defect found in the, in the fetus, that there is a possibility of subsequently performing an abortion, which is less halachically objectionable. 
but, but just so we have a sensitivity to the fact that 40 days may be an issue. It's quite possible that in the future there will be testing which could be done at an earlier gestational age, uh, which might make this 40-day distinction more of greater practical relevance. But in this day and age, in the average American scenario of prenatal testing, your testing and results will almost invariably never be completed by the 40th day of gestation, so it doesn't have much practical significance. Yes. Right, right. That's another ramification of the 40-day of distinction. So if you, have, if, you have a, <coughs> if you have a child less than 40 days as a miscarriage, and then you have a subsequent child, that subsequent child qualifies for a pigeon or ben as a firstborn. Right, so that's seven, eight weeks. That was, that, was, that was the comment, which is important. Seven, eight weeks is from the last menstrual period. So you take away, usually, the, the last menstrual period is two weeks before ovulation. So if you, subtract four, if you subtract two weeks from that and say five weeks, so five, it really is five to six weeks from conception, and five to six weeks is between 35 and 42 days. The picture, right, most women aren't even sure they're pregnant, depending on the length of the, of the, of the menses. It could, be, it could be a few, you know, it could be three, four weeks before you even know that you're pregnant. Um, this this uh, picture that you have, I, I copied from a, uh, a book, which, and this, this is a 40-day fetus. This is what a 40-day fetus looks like. So just to give you an idea of, of this distinction in the embryological development, right, this is not exact size. This is an enlarged photo. It's important. Yeah, th th this is an enlarged photo. Yeah, the, exact, the actual size would be measured probably in millimeters. It would be, it'd be very small. This is a, an atlas. It's from an atlas of different gestational ages. Um, so this four-day distinction does, does play a role. If you turn to, to page 8, um, here also, and I just wanted to mention this chuva because it's such, it's such an interesting chuva, and, and, and I think many of us will, will relate that it's a very important uh, concept, whether we uh, appreciate it or not. Um, the question that was posed to Yehuda Herzl Henkin, um, which related specifically to the pre-40-day phase, CVS, which is chorionic villus sampling, Nitan galos mumin bishilia, Kvarbiyom 35 lahirayon in the 35th day. Venish alti, I'm skipping to the where it says number one in parentheses. Me rab echad michutz laretz. Odot nashim bekila so shehein benos arboim ulamala. He had number of from an American rabbi who had a number of women in his congregation who were 40 and over. Ukvariyesh lahen yiladim, and they already have children. Viratzos lihisaberot, and they want to become pregnant again. Haval choshoshos shema havlad yepagum. But they're afraid because the, the incidence of Downs significantly increases with the, age, with the maternal age, with the age of the mother. There's different types of Down syndrome. There's, there's, there's Down syndrome, which is inherited, which is irrespective of, genetic, of, of maternal age. And then there's Down syndrome, which, which, which is as a result of, of some genetic changes to the eggs of the women that occur more so with age, with the, with the passage of time. So they're afraid that they might bear children who have Down syndrome because of their maternal age. Can they prospectively, they know of this possibility, can they get pregnant and, and say, I will, test, I will do pre, prenatal testing, I'll test the fetus before 40 days, and if they find out that the fetus is, a, is a, affected with, with the Down syndrome, then they'll have an abortion before the 40-day period. Can they do this? And what's the alternative? The alternative is they won't have any children at all because of the fear of having a Down syndrome. If you don't allow them to test and to subsequently abort, then they'll just say, fine, I don't want to have any child because I'm petrified I'm going to have a child with Down syndrome. I mean, this is a tremendous question. So how, how does he answer this question? <coughs> and again, this is a specific question, which I'm not going to generalize, 
um, his conclusions, and he doesn't even generalize his own conclusions. But, but without reading inside, so we can just advance a little bit, he says, indeed, they are allowed to do such a thing. They're allowed to prospectively uh, uh, enter into the pregnancy on the condition that they'll be able to test before 40 days and perform the abortion before the 40-day period. Uh, this is not something which is easily done, mind you, um, but it again shows a sensitivity to this 40-day distinction, and I, and I put in boldface, <coughs> in the boldface underlined section, this is not something which should be widely publicized, you know, in the newspapers, um, because you could be concerned that we should we should uh, have have less uh, less concern for abortion. And I actually just want to shift your attention, without leaving this topic, to page six, the bottom of page six, um, that even the Tzitzeliezer, who is the most permissive in this in these rulings. Uh, makes the following statement, lest you think that he considers abortion something light and something that should not be taken seriously. One should not take the concept of abortion lightly. He who allows abortion for the seventh month is making this statement. There's a tremendous responsibility both for the person who is asking the question of the rabbi and the rabbi who is answering the question. But just to, to realize that it is not a light matter, even though we talk about the permissibility of abortion, the prohibition of abortion, it's not something any of us should take, should take lightly. So what happened to, uh, to Yaakov and Rachel? They got upset that it was permitted for them to undergo the amniocentesis. They underwent the amniocentesis, and Baruch Hashem, the child was found to be healthy and was not afflicted with, with Tay-Sex, was not a, a carrier of both recessive genes of Tay-Sex, even though both the parents had. <coughs> so now, a year or two goes by, and, and they want to have another child. And Rachel says, I cannot imagine undergoing the torture that I went through with the last pregnancy of the fear of having a child with Tay-Sex and the possibility of, of having to abort or, or not being able to abort such a child. I, I just can't do it. So what are my options? So now we live in a world where there are other options. And one of those options is on page 9. And that is a procedure which, is, which we could probably have spent three hours just talking about the ramifications of this procedure. And that procedure is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is just a remarkable procedure. In this procedure, the couple has to undergo um, in vitro fertilization, which means they don't conceive naturally. They would have to harvest the reproductive seed of the man and the reproductive seed of the woman. They would combine them in a petri dish, fertilize it in a petri dish. They would take the fertilized egg, allow that fertilized egg to grow to the eight-cell stage. And at that stage, and this is exactly the picture in your handout, and this is all microscopic, obviously, they would remove one of those eight cells from the embryo, fertilized embryo, and send it to the laboratory for genetic analysis. And they would be able to tell every, everything that the geneticist could theoretically determine, they can determine from that one cell. So they can look at the entire human chromosome. They can tell you uh, not only about Tay-Sachs, they can tell you every genetic disease. Uh, they can tell you predispositions. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, blue eyes, green eyes, that they can't yet tell you. Um, intelligence, they can't yet tell you. Those are things of the, that's the fear of the, of the designer baby concept. But... Uh, it has to be exactly. It has to be exactly. Cannot do it earlier. And later, I see at this stage, it's a very fascinating stage, and we'll talk about this more in the stem cell, uh, stem cell area. Um, 
because once it develops beyond this point, then the embryo develops into two different poles, and some of the cells migrate to one pole, and some of the cells migrate to another pole. At this stage, all the cells are pretty much identical. Now, when they first, and they all have potential to compensate and to grow into any imaginable part of the body. Now, when they originally did this, just a few days, actually, when they originally did this, I mean, imagine, I mean, you really talk about tinkering with life. You have eight cells, um, and we talked about uh, in, in the first talk, you know, a child, uh, a man that has an amputated limb, they thought that the, the sperm derived from every limb of the body. And there was a fear that a man who had an amputated limb would produce a child that had the same limb deficiency because there wasn't any reproductive seed from that part of the body which was extracted. So imagine you have eight cells and the very first implantation, it's now an asymmetric number. You have seven cells left. What is this child going to look like? This could, could have looked like the most grossly deformed being or, or not survived at all. So it was a tremendous risk that they were taking, and they, was, they were petrified that that indeed might happen. But what subsequently happened is the child developed completely normally. And these, these cells, even though they were odd in number, and even though one of, the, one of only eight cells was missing, the cells are able to compensate at that early embryological stage to produce a child which is healthy. Now, we talked about these things bear out in 10, 20, 30 years. There were initial statistics about the possibility with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis of the children not being as healthy. Uh, and that's, I mean, right now it seems that they're relatively as healthy, but in 20, 30 years from now, it, things might change. So I'm telling you, as science is currently. Um, yes, and that'll be our next, that'll be page 11. <coughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Yes. Um, they, 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 the testing that is done to determine the Tay-Sachs is the exact same testing that can be done for everything. And it takes them the same time, to, the same time in 10 minutes to be able to test for everything. Well, it's longer than that. But it takes them, but it takes them it's the same test. And actually, this is fascinating. I don't know how this is going to evolve, but, but the tests are, are batched. So you can actually, with this very same blood test, literally a drop of blood, um, if you're doing on a carrier testing, you know, an adult, you can test for everything. You can test for 20, you can test for everything you put on the panel. You can test for 100 diseases at the same time. Now, your physician that's sending out for the test, he only checks off, you know, ABC. You know, checks off Tay-Sachs, for example. But if you want, you can test for everything. So do you want to have all this information? Do you not want to have all this information? Your doctor's saying, oh, listen, you know, it's the same price. You know, it's the same test. We'll just check off all the 100 other diseases, and then you're going to get back all this information. You're not going to know what to deal with. So it, it's, it's a very complex issue, but, but it's the same testing that's done to identify Tay-Sachs, the same testing that's done to... Uh, I mean, there, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm oversimplifying. Um, and, and some of these things, in, in, you have to match against the exact gene, but, but in essence, the same procedure can, can find all the genetic abnormalities that exist. So now they're faced with this interesting dilemma. And if, and if you look in her handout, I'm not going to read through it just for your interest. This is from a, a, a genetics lab, uh, Genetics and IVF in Institute in Fairfax, uh, Virginia, which is at the frontier, really pushing the limits of, uh, of assisted reproduction. Um, and, and you have all the, the things for which they perform pre-implantation genetic diagnosis all under the, uh, the uh, bolded heading. They perform it for trisomy prevention, for gender selection, which we'll talk about in a minute, prevention for, of X-linked diseases, you turn the page, all these other things for which they prevent, uh, <coughs> prevent disease. <coughs> so can this young couple um, make use of this extraordinary technology? Because they can test... They can test their, uh, their embryos for Tay-Sachs and then not, not implant a child with Tay-Sachs. Is that permitted according to halacha? Is that not permitted according to halacha? 
So the answer is <coughs> that a number of rabbinic authorities have indeed allowed this. Now, what is the problem? Why is it an issue? What would be, what would be the halachic impediment to performing such a procedure? The halachic impediment you'll actually learn about more from Richard Grazi on the last day when he talks about assisted reproduction and artificial insemination in vitro fertilization. You're, you're, there is a prohibition against wasting the male reproductive seed or destroying the male reprodu reproductive seed or, or obtaining it in, in a non-normal fashion. So that it's actually a, a major barrier for all forms of assisted reproduction. Obtaining the reproduct reproductive seed in any abnormal fashion uh, is generally frowned upon. Now, obviously, it's, it's allowed to justify the ends, I'm sorry, the means is allowed to, uh, to justify the ends when, when you want to produce a child for in vitro fertilization, etc. Um, and the question is here to harvest, now the, the couple can become pregnant naturally. They don't need to do this. They don't need to harvest his reproductive seed to have a child. They're only doing it to prevent their child from having Tay-Sachs. So is that something which would be allowed according to Jewish law? Is it not? Um, and like I said, the, the uh, Many rabbinic, it's, it's not something which is prevalent or very common these days. It's becoming more and more common as the technology becomes more available, as more people are testing themselves to find out about genetic conditions. Yes, sir? Excellent question. We will actually talk about that in, in more detail when we talk about stem cell research because the stem cells are harvested from these embryos. That's exactly where they come from. So, the, so the, what happens to these excess embryos? Right? Can we discard them? Can we throw them out? Can we use them for stem cell research? We'll, we'll talk about that. They're potential human beings. Are they, are, are they potential in the eyes of Jewish law or not? Um, so, so they are, yes. No, no. Has no, no, bear, no bears no relationship to maternal age. The question was, is, is a Tay-Sachs a higher incidence if the mother is older? The answer is no. It has, has no relationship to maternal age. So the... Um, so they, now the other questions which are interesting is if you're doing this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you can determine the exact chromosomal makeup of the, of the child. Now you definitely don't want a child that has both recessive genes for Tay-Sachs, but can you tell the technician or tell the, the geneticist, I don't want to have a carrier? Can you request, I don't want to have a carrier? So it's an interesting question. Um, so, um, and I actually have not seen any rabbinic authorities discuss this issue specifically. I'm just raising it as, as sort of an interesting thing. And uh, so the bottom line is, they are allowed, they, got, they go to their rabbi. Again, everything has to be done to go to your rabbi. And, uh, and the rabbi says it's permitted to undergo in vitro fertilization. You're in, permitted to, uh, to perform the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and there's only a handful of labs in the country that are doing it today. Uh, there's a lab in Chicago, there's a lab in Michigan. Um, uh, I think Columbia is now doing it. The, uh, the, uh, I don't know if they're doing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a different, uh, that's a different thing. So the, um, and it's becoming more and more popular and more centers are using it. Um, so now they got this permission to undergo uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and they're very excited because now it alleviates the tremendous anxiety associated. Now, don't think for a moment that it's easy to undergo pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. It's financially burdensome, it's emotionally burdensome, it's physiologically burdensome, and it's not 100%. Don't think, oh, I just go and I, you know, she gives her eggs, I give my sperm, and then she gets pregnant and everything is hunky-dory. It's absolutely not like that. It's a very arduous process. A woman has to take uh, hormones to stimulate the, uh, the ovaries to, pr 
produce more eggs in order to harvest. The success rate is getting better and better all the time, but it's by no means 100%. You may have to undergo a few cycles in order for the, uh, for the woman to become pregnant, and Richard Grazi, who's, uh, who's an expert in this field, will, will assuredly uh, uh, share with you some, some uh, important information on, on that topic, which he will discuss extensively in a few days from now. Um, so now they, they're given this they're given this permission to use pre-implantation gen genetic diagnosis. So, they, uh, so, so Rachel turns to Yaakov and says, you know, our first child was a girl. I'd really like a boy. They're in there anyway. They're, they're removing that one cell anyway. Can't they just make it you know, a boy? You're not making it. I'm saying, can't they just implant the boy? Can't they implant the boy that doesn't have Tay-Sachs? And who's six feet tall and who has blue eyes and who's highly intelligent and who swims and who plays basketball? Can't they? So that's an important question. Right, obviously, they're not going to implant. <coughs> the eight cells are from one embryo. So that embryo is either a boy embryo or a girl embryo. And there is pretty much a guarantee that if they check it, that's what it is. This is a genetic test. They're testing, does this embryo have XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes? So this is not. Now, what I share for you on, on page 11, which... Right, right. No, the embryos are fertilized. Absolutely. Uri, thank you for clarifying. The embryos are what they are, but it's, it's finding the embryo that they want to implant, selecting the embryo that they want to implant. If you look on page 11, an article which appeared in the, Jeru in the Jerusalem Post of last year, it's a great title. It says, will that be Meir or Meira? Uh, it is now possible to choose the sex of a baby, even for non-medical reasons. <clears throat> and also an excerpt from an article which appeared in People magazine. And what I detailed for you on the bottom are the different methods of sex selection. Now, there are different forms of sex selection that you might have heard about in the media, and just to, just to clarify what those are exactly, you can do sex selection before conception in a number of different ways. So it's possible for, for a man to send off a sperm sample to a laboratory, and the sperm sample, will and, and the laboratory will, will separate the sample into an X vial and a Y vial. Into, a, uh, into ones that would produce female children, ones that would produce male children. And that's a microsort, um, under, the, under the heading microsort. Um, and there are different methods of using this. They use it based on the different, uh, um, the weight of the X and the Y sperm. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to primarily because I'm not well versed in, the, in, in all the differences between, between these things, but there are a number of different methods to select out the X sperm and the Y sperm. Um, but these are by no means anywhere near as accurate as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis where you have a fertilized embryo which is already the combination of the, of the reproductive seeds and if the testing is done correct it is 100% that this is either a male child or a female child. <coughs> yes, yes, there definitely is a lot of distinction. <coughs> By the way, with respect to the, the statistics about this uh, sperm sorting, some say that the statistics of the ones that you send away the, uh, the, the sperm, so the, the, the odds are about 50-50 that you'll get whatever child that you want. <laughs> but but they're nowhere near, they're nowhere near as, as perfect. So there, is, there, is there a distinction? Well, first of all, the question we have to ask, is it appropriate to select out for sex? Can they say, is it halakhically appropriate to say, I want to have a male child. I want to have a female child. Now, in the general world, it's called family balancing because, uh, you know, you, want to, you have a bunch of male children, you want to have a female, or vice versa. But in the halakhic world, we have another compelling, we have a compelling reason why we might want a family balance. We have halakhic reasons to family balance because we have an obligation to prove, which we learned about this morning from the gematria of 248 and 252, you should have the obligation to prove is to have a male child and a female child. So you, so you might say, listen, 
I've, I've got nine boys. <coughs> maybe if I lived 50 years ago, it's different. But maybe the Torah obligates me to use microsort or to use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis so I can have a girl because my obligation is to have a female child. So is that the case or is that not the case? So I will tell you categorically, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that is not the case. The same thing is true, by the way, with in vitro fertilization. Um, you might say I'm not able to have a child naturally. I now live in an age where they have in vitro fertilization. Maybe the Torah obligates me to go and use this technology so I can have a child. The answer is no. Absolutely not. Your obligation is to do it in the natural means. If you can't do it in the natural me uh, means, you've discharged your obligation. You're no longer obligated. Now, you may be permitted to use the technology under restrictions and limitations, which the rabbis and, and the Richard Grazi will discuss, but you're by no means obligated to use the technology. But here, <coughs> the question is, are you allowed to use this technology to be able to se select out for either Mayer or Meira? So it's interesting because... Now, to do so with the sperm sorting, that you're absolutely not allowed to do because there you have to provide a sperm sample, which means that there's, there is an emission of the male reproductive seed in a non-normal fashion. And that would fall into the category of, of hashchasa zera. Now, you can do it for IVF, but you can't do it for sex selection under no circumstances. But here, you're actually in the lab. You've already gotten a permission to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. All it is is the tech you know, doing another test on the embryo. Can you now, can you do it? Now, the same thing applies, by the way, to prospectively do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis exclusively for sex selection. That you are absolutely not allowed to do. But here again, that's not the case. They have them in the lab. All they have to do is further testing on these embryos. And I will tell you that some rabbinic authorities have indeed allowed sex selection in these limited cases when they have a permission to do, to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for other reasons such as the case of Tay-Sachs. And here also, this is, not, this is not a blanket heter. But I will share with you just one interesting case. There was someone who had a, uh, <coughs> who, a couple that was infertile, and they needed to undergo, the husband was completely infertile and had no sperm whatsoever, zero sperm count. Um, so they couldn't even do uh, any forms of assisted reproduction. They needed a, and they needed a donor. Uh, and, it's, and Richard Grazi will discuss this. There are extensive issues about whether you can use, whether at all you can use donor sperm, and if you should use donor, should you use a Jew versus a non-Jew, etc. Um, so it turns out that this, the, the husband was a Kohen. So the Kohen said, you know, so you got a permission to, to, from a rabbi to, uh, to do artificial insemination using a donor. So you ask the follow-up question, because now I got permission for in vitro fertilization using a donor. Can I select out to have a female child? Because if I have a male child and I go up to, to get my first aliyah or I go up to Duchen on, on, uh, on uh, Shalosh Regalim, my son can't come with me. And it's going to be very awkward. Can I do sex selection in order to have a female child? So, I mean, this is, I mean, you can't make these questions up. You know, these, these are, these are, and they're not going to become less complicated. They're going to become more complicated. <coughs> so that's the issue of uh, sex selection. So the answer is some rabbis allowed them, if they're undergoing PGD anyway, some have allowed that you could do sex selection in that case. Is this uh, a firm rabbi Yeah, this is a firm rabbi answering. And I, and I also hasten to add, it is not a generalizable Hetter, and a lot of people would, would, uh, would uh, caution very strongly against it. And there's fear, there's this general global fear that uh, if you allow sex selection uh, wantonly, then, uh, you know, in China, in India, where they're, they're killing babies that are born, 
already that they're going to just select out and there's going to be no female children at all in, the, you know, in India and in, in China. It's chaos. So, I mean, some are not as concerned about that. Some are concerned about that, yeah. <coughs> so the question is, if you found a coin to donate, would the child be a coin? And I don't want to pull, pull out the uh, rug from, uh, from Richard Grazi, but the, but the answer is, is uh, for those of you who are not going to be there, everybody's going to be there, close your ears. Um, the, the general consensus is that, that the donor of the sperm would be the halachic father. Uh, so if indeed the father is a Kohen, then theoretically that subsequent sh- progeny would be a Kohen. So to find, you know, I can put an ad, imagine that ad in the newspaper, right, in Jewish Week, looking for a Kohen sperm donor. Um, actually, I apologize, I'm going to hold, I really, I'm really sorry, I just want to hold questions. Um, single motherhood and artificial insemination. Um, in, in, uh, in brief, uh, it's, it's obviously a complex issue, and again, something which those of you who are going to come to Richard Grazi, close your ears. Everybody else can keep them open. The, there, is, there is no clear reason to prohibit from a halachic perspective, from a legal halachic perspective, a single woman from undergoing artificial insemination. It is probably, there's probably no specific prohibition that you could point to. Uh, having said that, almost uniformly, the rabbis suggest against it and, and uh, paskin against it. Um, having said that, I know specific cases of women who have received permission to undergo in vitro uh, fertilization who are single. Uh, and obviously, there's no Sanhedrin today. There's no uniformity of these, of these piske halacha. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a sociological sock issue than, than a real halacha. I really, I, I really apologize. I have, to, I, have to, uh, I have to hold off on the questions. Let's... Um, um, so they now had their first child with natural process, you know, Yaakov and Rachel. They had their second child with this use of this extraordinary technology, pre-implantation, genetic diagnosis. Uh, and they selected out uh, with this permission from the rabbi to do sex selection. So they now have a boy child and a girl child. Um, now one day, um, Rachel gets a call from her mother that, that she was getting her routine mammograms. And this year the doctor gave her a call that unfortunately they found a malignancy on her mammogram. And very fortunately, they detected it early, and they were able to do a lumpectomy. They removed the cancer. They didn't find any lymph nodes, and she is now healthy. But Rachel is reading these newspapers, and she's literate, and she reads the New York Times, and she knows that there's a certain gene which is associated with Jews and breast cancer, and she wants to know if her mother had breast cancer, maybe her mother has this gene, and maybe she has this gene. So she calls up her mother, and she says, Mom, do me a favor. Just go to the doctor. Tell him you want to test for this cancer gene. There's, there's, there's right now, and I'm sure this will change, and the next time we, we meet and have a talk on these topics, uh, BRCA, which is short for breast cancer, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are associated not only with breast cancer, but with ovarian cancer, and not only associated with can- breast cancer for, for women, they're associated with breast cancer for men. Um, so she calls up her mom, and she says, Mom, do me a favor. I want you to, I want you to just go to the doctor and test yourself. So her mom says, I don't, I don't want to hear from this stuff. I had my cancer. Thank God I'm okay. Don't bother me with this genetic stuff. I want to have nothing to do about it. Um, so the question is, should Rachel test herself? And if she should, what should she do about it? I mean, what is she going to do with this kind of information? So what I, what I have for you here on page 12 and 13 is a, uh, an overview of some of the articles in the past year on, uh, on breast cancer sc- uh, screening and uh, prophylactic interventions, which means interventions to prevent the onset of disease of, uh, of breast cancer. So, uh, so here you have, uh, and I'll just mention them, obviously you can read more information inside the handout, the frequency of screening. There are debates about how frequently people should be screened. So at present, reading from that first uh, entry, 
Um, there is no consensus regarding how frequently breast cancer mutation carriers should be screened for malignancies using breast imaging techniques. So the purpose of me sharing this information with you is for you to realize that it's a process and evolution. Yes, there's an association with a certain gene and cancer. How we deal with that information is a continuing process of integrating new scientific information and applying it to recommendations. I should hasten to add it's extremely important to realize that a very small percentage of breast cancer is inherited. 90% of women who develop breast cancer do not have this, this genetic uh, abnormality. The overwhelming majority do not. A small percentage of women do have the genetic form which is associated with this uh, BRCA1 or BRCA2. The next uh, entry on your handout, the method of screening. So if you find out you're positive, mammogram, there's many things you can do. You can do breast self-examinations. Self you can do mammograms. There, but there are other modalities. There are other things that you can do. You can do ultrasound to look at the breast tissue. You can do an MRI of the breast to look at the breast. Which one should you do? When should you do it? How often should you do it? Um, and I'll just skip to the conclusion section. In BRCA1 and BR the conclusions of, on page 12, actually. This is the bottom of page 12. <coughs> in BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers, MRI is more sensitive for detecting breast cancers than mammography, ultrasound, or breast exam alone. Whether surveillance regimens that include MRI will reduce mortality from breast cancer in high-risk women requires further investigation. So it's a process and evolution. I, this, this past Shabbos, Friday night, I ate at, at the house of a radiologist whose entire practice is mammography and breast ultrasound. That's what he does for a living. And he told me countless stories of women who had a, a mammogram six months earlier and then had a very large tumor which was detected six months later. He told me women who had MRIs that were negative but still had breast cancer. So it, it's a process and evolution. I mean, uh, and, I mean, of course, these are, these are separate cases, not many cases, but, but it's something that we have to be concerned about. And when going forward, we have to realize that, that people who are found to be positive should, should be very careful in their follow-up in, in, in terms of getting the, uh, um, the proper follow-up. So here's, really the, the, but here's the real question. If you find out you're positive and you're doing this increased screen, what, I mean, uh, what, will it change anything for you? Will you survive longer? That's really the, the issue. So to have information that's not going to be relevant to you, let's say I find out I have a condition, and if I, find out, if I don't find out I have it, I'm going to die at 65. If I find out I have it, I'm going to die at 65. Do I want to know this information? Do I want to live the rest of my life knowing that I'm going to have this uh, the disease that's going to kill me earlier than I should be? No, I don't want to know this. But if the information, if I can do something with the information, then maybe I do want to know this. Not only that, maybe I need to know this from a halakhic perspective to prevent myself from developing the disease. So there are a number of things that can be done. Aside from increasing the frequency of testing, of whether it be mammogram or ultrasound or MRI, <coughs> there's something that can be done about it. And the most radical thing that can be done about it is a bilateral mastectomy is to remove the breast tissue. Remove both breasts. A very it's called radical for a reason. It's a radical mastectomy. It's a very radical procedure. Should one even think about such a thing? What does halacha have to say about such a thing? Is it prohibited to do because right now I'm healthy and I don't have a disease? Or am I obligated to do it because if, if I do it, the likelihood of me developing breast cancer has gone down significantly? Or has it gone down significantly? So if you look at the literature... Right, so, for, so uh, there's another issue. Ovarian for BRCA2 is associated with ovarian cancer. <coughs> and we'll talk about that literature in a second, too. 
Um, so this, this study, and these are retrospective studies of a whole host of other studies. I'll read from the middle study, from the middle, middle of the page, uh, towards the underlying section, the last, uh, the last, in the middle paragraph, the last few lines. Prophylactic mastectomy was shown to significantly reduce the risk of breast cancer by 89 to 100%. In BRCA1 and 2 carriers with breast cancer, tamoxifen was, use was associated with the prevention of secondary breast cancer. That's a separate issue. But there, there are a whole host of things that, you can be, that can be done if you're positive. That includes taking of medication. There are certain medications short of surgery. And the most radical thing is to perform the surgery. Now, we're not going to answer these things today. Obviously, it's just food for thought and realize that there are complex issues that need to be addressed and you really need to think about them. Uh, and, and the halachic issues need to be discussed with, uh, with the rabbinic authority. And uh, for those of you who mentioned ovarian cancer, um, they showed that, the, that removing the ovaries also significantly reduces the likelihood of ovarian cancer for those women who are found to be positive for BRCA1 and BRCA2. And the halachic issues are... Right, when does it end? The, the, the removing the ovaries is another halachic issue. So for women who are fertile and, ha- and, and haven't had children yet, at what, at what stage should they remove the ovaries? Should they remove them right now when they're, they're uh, 35 years old? Or should they wait till they have children first? Should they wait till they have two children? Should they wait till they have three children and then have the ovaries removed? Right now they're healthy, they don't have the disease. And also they've found in a small percentage of women who underwent the ovary removal while they were healthy, they've already found cancer in those ovaries. And a small percentage of those women who were walking around completely healthy didn't even know that they had cancer. So it, it's, a complex, uh, it's a complex issue. But um, many of you asked, and I want to do this for our next section. Okay, thank you very much. The, um, about what to do with this information. So it happened in, this, in our case, for the sake of our discussion, Rachel tested, and she was found to be positive for BRCA1. And aside from all the issues which she has to deal with about whether she should, how frequent her exams should be, whether they should include ultrasound and whether they should include MRI, whether she should uh, have a bilateral mastectomy or not, these are all issues which she's grappling with. She's thinking about other issues as time progresses. Um, she has a daughter. And she's thinking, do, do I have to tell my daughter that I'm BRCA positive? And if I have to tell her, when should I tell her? At what stage in her life? And if she is positive, does she have to tell her prospective spouse when she's ready to get married? Do we have to divulge this information to somebody she's ready to marry? There's tremendous fear in the Jewish community in particular of use of this information for discrimination purposes. And what I have on your handout, we won't go through it, <coughs> but some really fascinating uh, excerpts about how genetic discrimination is a fear and how people are afraid it will be used to prevent them from getting jobs. There's, there's a case on, on page 14, a teacher who was refused a job because her genetic test showed that she was positive for Huntington's disease. Um, um, people are afraid they're going to be refused insurance if they test for genetics. And right now, it's illegal for insurance companies to test for genetic diseases, but they are lobbying very strongly to allow you to test for your genetic diseases. Uh, but just something interesting to share in a different perspective, not that I'm, I'm invested in insurance companies per se, but you have to think about it um, from a slightly different perspective. Imagine a scenario where, some, where 
you have information that the insurance company doesn't and can't get a hold of. So you find out you're positive for BRCA1 and 2, you find out you're positive for genes for colon cancer, and you say, listen, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to protect myself, but I'm going to take out insurance policies for $10 million because I know that I have all this disease and the insurance company doesn't. So God forbid something should happen to you, the insurance company is going to pay out $10 million. Who is paying that $10 million? Everybody else. Everybody else is paying that $10 million. So you have to realize it's not such a simple issue with holding this information from insurance companies. There is a, there is a logic to allowing them to have, to, to, to have some of this information, which is beneficial to everybody. So it's not a simple cut and dry that don't let the insurance companies have it. Uh, I mean, they have all, listen, why should they have any of my information? They already can do it. testing, you know, a tremendous amount of testing for every other disease that I have. Should genetic testing be fundamentally different than any, any other testing? Um, <clears throat> But the dilemma lies in the issue of the fact that BRCA is not an existing disease. It is a gene of predisposition to disease. And therein lies the tremendous complexity of this issue. Because we talked about the variability of diseases before. BRCA1 means, and these statistics are changing on a weekly basis, that there is a higher likelihood that you will develop cancer in your lifetime. Are you guaranteed to develop cancer? No. When will you develop it? You might develop it when you're 80 years old. Will the disease be curable when you develop it? Yes, it might be curable when you develop it. For sure, with the, with the existing treatment, maybe by the time you're 80, there'll be treatment to cure the cancer that you develop. So it's vastly different than saying you have Tay-Sachs disease, which is going to kill somebody in four years. This is a predisposition to disease. They're finding predisposition to all sorts of conditions. Predisposition to diabetes, predisposition to high blood pressure. What do you do with all this information? And, and that's, that's where the complexity lies. Because discriminatory, discriminatory practices based on predisposition is a very difficult line, a very complex line to cross. So let's shift to some halachic sources on page 16 and 17. And just to apportion our time, <clears throat> we must get to stem cells. We absolutely will not leave this room without talking about stem cells. Um, and I apologize, I went over in the morning session, but I don't have the luxury of going over in the afternoon in this session. Uh, maybe for a few minutes, but not much more than that. So the, um, the, the sources on confidentiality, and what I'll do in order to, to move us more rapidly into stem cells, is I'll just summarize them outside. And we'll read one inside, and that's the, that's the Chazanish. And the question which all these sources deal with is the requirement of divulging information about the existence of disease to a prospective spouse or a prospective spouse's family. Whose responsibility is it to divulge that information? Is it, is it uh, obligatory? Is it forbidden because it's lush and hara? It's, 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 uh, it's saying something negative about somebody else. Is it uh, something which is uh, optional for you to do? Um, actually, no, before we do the Chavetz Chaim, just to share with you that it's, it's already an issue from the 1200s. If you look in Sefer Hasidim in the top, um, the excerpt comes from Sefer Hasidim, Rabbi Huda Chassid. says, Lo adam mum beso im banav okrovov lehizdaveg imeshlem choli shilu hayu yodimo so misdavgim imahem lo hayu misdavgim. 1200s. If you have a medical condition, which if your prospective spouse would know about, know about and their family would know about and they wouldn't proceed with the marriage, you are obligated to tell them about it. You cannot withhold that kind of information. And what we have in, this, in the next two pages, we have a number of tshuvos from the Chelkos Yaakov, Yaakov Breish, and it's Eliezer, about cases where people ask specific questions. One case is a man who had cancer, 
and the, and the physician knew about it, and he, his prognosis was that he would likely die within two to three years, and he did not divulge that information to his, his, uh, his, the woman to whom he was engaged. Is the physician obligated to divulge that information? Um, so the answer here, you would say absolutely not, and that's absolutely the, yes. and you would say absolutely yes. So these, <coughs> these halachic discussions revolve around the the uh, the obligation of lotamodo damreacha. There's an obligation which you may may hear about in the organ donation talk about live organ donation, of not standing by when someone's life is at risk. The Rambam and others extend this to many other areas about financial loss. If you know, if you are privy to information that this person's now about to sign on the dotted line for a deal which you know he's going to lose millions of dollars in this deal, you have an obligation to tell them. You can't stand there and do nothing. So it applies not only to life and death issues, it applies to financial issues as well. Anything which someone is going to be harmed by, and that's a pretty wide, a pretty wide net. So they all subsume it under this category, and the Chavit Chaim says in the underlined section in the right in the left-hand side in the middle, if the person has a medical condition, and the, and the prospective uh, in-laws don't know about it, um, the person who has this information, and it doesn't have to be the groom himself or the, or the bride herself, it could be the physician who has this information. If he divulges this, he's not violating any prohibitions of rechilus, of, of, of tail-bearing. And he says you should, div- you should divulge this information, and he stipulates the criteria in the bottom in the smaller print. By the underlined area, it says, She's bar And he says, one, you have to stipulate, before you can divulge the information, there's a couple of criteria. You have to know that this is indeed a medical condition. Two, um, you cannot exaggerate the nature of the condition beyond what, it, what you know. Three, that, the, uh, that you're doing it out of genuine concern about the people involved and not for malicious reasons to get back at somebody to divulge this information. And if you meet those three criteria, then not only are you permitted to divulge that information as stipulated by Yaakov Breish and by Tzitzeliezer in the, in the next page, you have an obligation to do so. And the Tzitzeliezer says, if you go skip to page 17, um, and I'm reading in the bold section, like five lines into the bold section, where the Tzitzeliezer says, Reisi Shikasov Everybody is, you get Lashon Hara, you get the Chavitz Chaim's calendar, and everybody admonishing you against Lashon Hara. I'm admonishing you, for the opposite. It's more prevalent. Those people who have important information that can save somebody from harm and are refraining from divulging that information and are standing there doing nothing. So that I'm far more concerned about. So you, if you have something which you know is going to harm somebody, you have an obligation to tell that. So even the physician is a third party who's not involved in this. You might say, listen, if he asks me, I'll tell him. If he doesn't ask me, I'll mind my own business. No. You have an obligation to divulge that information. So let us now shift our attention to our couple, Rachel and Leah. I keep saying that. Uh, Yaakov and Yaakov and Rachel. Rachel reads the newspapers and she sees this new exciting frontier of research, stem cell research. And she says to herself, you know, I underwent in vitro fertilization with my husband in order to perform the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. 
They invariably harvest more, more uh, eggs than are necessary, and they invariably fertilize more embryos than are necessary for implantation. So they, they implanted a few embryos in here. They have 10 embryos that are sitting in the laboratory. And she says, you know, maybe I should donate these for stem cell research. You know, I'm not sure if we're going to be needing them anymore. So can she donate them for stem cell research halachically, or can she not donate them for stem cell research halachically? <coughs> so first of all, where do these stem cells come from? What are stem cells? Um, and actually, in fact, every single person in this room has stem cells. We have stem cells in our heart. We have stem cells in our bone marrow. We have stem cells in our brains. These are called adult stem cells. But are these the stem cells that President Bush gave his first presidential address about? Are these the stem cells that everybody's so concerned about that everyone is crying a murder? No, these aren't the stem cells. The stem cells that everybody else is talking about are called embryonic stem cells. Where do embryonic stem cells come from? They come from embryos. So when they fertilize an embryo, and you have the embryo, the egg and the sperm meet, <coughs> as you have on your hand out in the upper left-hand corner, page 18, after a few days or a week or two, a small cluster of cells migra migrates to one side of the embryo, and those cells are called stem cells. What is so magical and mystical about these stem cells? These stem cells will, will become all the organ systems in your body. At this developmental stage, each one of them has the potential to develop into any organ system in the body. Now, what makes one stem cell number one become a brain and stem cell number two become a heart and stem cell number three become a liver? That's the field of embryology. And if you study that and you don't believe in God afterwards, you need a serious talking to. <laughs> because it's just extraordinary how this small group of cells can ultimately migrate and what who decides to become what, and they ultimately find the right location within the body and become the organs. It's just, just mind-boggling. Absolutely fascinating. But scientists believe they can harness these, these embryonic stem cells and direct them into producing... Uh, cells of certain organ systems to cure human disease. Now, what kind of things could they theoretically cure? Um, actually, before we get to that, where, where does one obtain these, these, these uh, embryonic stem cells? So there are a couple sources. Source number one, which I, I'll leave for, for alone for today because Fagy Kaplan will be discussing it. Source number one is from, uh, from cloning. You can actually clone embryos, uh, and you can use the cloned embryo um, for stem cell research. So for, uh, source number two, which is the most common really, is excess embryos that were used for assisted reproduction, like this young couple, Yaakov and Rachel. Um, and there are, at a conservative estimate, hundreds of thousands of fertilized embryos that are sitting in reproductive laboratories in the United States and abroad. So these are a fertile source, if you will, of stem cell research because many of these will ultimately be discarded anyway. Oh, yes, yeah, so, so what you mentioned, and I'll, I'll take a, a brief moment to, to discuss this, is, uh, is, is, is the stem cells that are harvested from umbilical cord blood. Now, these stem cells are not embryonic stem cells. They cannot become every organ system in the body. These are, these are specifically blood stem cells. These are only stem cells within the blood system. They only have the potential, as we understand it today, which may change, to develop into, into, uh, into uh, only blood cells, a bloodline. So they are actually used exclusively to treat leukemias or bloodborne diseases. And to share with you a fascinating application of umbilical cord stem cell research and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, there was a couple who had a child that suffered from Fanconi's anemia. Fanconi's anemia is actually one of those conditions on, uh, on Doria Shoyim's list. It doesn't affect the Jewish community so significantly, uh, but it's a potentially fatal condition. And the treatment is bone marrow donation. 
um, but they searched the world far and wide, all the bone marrow databases, and there's no bone marrow donor to be, to be found. So the couple, there was a case actually a few years ago of a family who conceived a child naturally to produce a child that would be a bone marrow donor, and there's a one in four chance that it would be, and as Ashkacha would have it, it was. But now you don't have to take a chance. Now you can do in vitro fertilization, you can do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, find the embryo that's an HLA match for the existing child, and implant that one. And that's what this couple in the United Kingdom did. They did in vitro fertilization. They tested the embryos. They found the one which was an exact match to the child with Fanconi's anemia. The woman became pregnant. After nine months, in the delivery room, they harvested the umbilical cord stem cells from the umbilical cord, which, which they remove anyway for routine testing. They, they removed those cells, implanted those cells into this fellow who suffered from Fanconi's anemia, and completely cured his disease. Unbelievable. I mean, this is really extraordinary technology, which is just going to get more fascinating as time goes on. So that's the application of the stem cells in the cord blood. But what else can they be done? Uh, what else can be done in the, uh, for stem cells? And on your handout, I have a few examples. Um, they can produce potentially blood cells. So you, don't, you no longer have to have your, uh, your local show blood drive. You just call up the laboratory, in theory, and say, oh, just uh, make some AB negative blood from uh, some stem cells and send it to the laboratory at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it can potentially cure diabetes. It can potentially affect organ donation. It could potentially, and I'll, tell, I'll share with you this one, one case from the research in Israel. <coughs> in Israel, they produced heart tissue from stem cells and they, they cultivated the heart tissue in the laboratory till it was actually beating tissue like a beating heart. They took that tissue, they implanted it into hearts of rats and showed that the tissue integrated into rats. So imagine the potential treatment for heart attacks or for heart transplantation. And the marriage of, heart, of, of stem cell research and cloning. You know, if a person needs a heart, I mean, now you need to take medicines to suppress your immune system. If you need a heart, we'll just clone a cell for you. We'll cultivate the heart tissue in the laboratory. We'll transplant that back into your own heart, and you won't even need to take medications to suppress your immune system because your body recognizes it as your own tissue. Actually, Padre, we're going to hold all questions in, until the end just so we can complete, uh, complete this, this issue. And the very recent, this is from December 7th of this year, on the bottom of page 18, um, Parkinson's, there's a, there's a possibility of Parkinson's in the very first such research. In Israel, a lot of this research is taking place in Israel, they transplanted tissue into rats who suffered from Parkinson's disease, which they created in the laboratory, and they found that, that stem cell transplants actually helped their Parkinson's disease. And they're working on perfecting this. I mean, this is mind-boggling stuff. This is really uh, the potential to cure tremendous disease. Let us now turn to page 20. In our last few minutes, we'll talk about what the halacha has to say about stem cell research. So in order to give you an idea of what, of what the halacha would say, I'll share with you the following scenario. And this is actually based on a real case, which is in the top of your handout on page 20. A real case in Tel Aviv. There was a power failure, and the embryos were being preserved by a power system, which they aren't always, uh, it's not always the case, and 500 embryos decomposed as a result, which is a terrible, terrible tragedy. But let's assume for our discussion that this happened on Shabbos. There's a power failure on Shabbos, and they rushed to the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and they interrupted him in the middle of Musaf, and they said, Rabbi, we got a serious problem on our hands. We have the hospital down the block that has a power failure. If we don't violate Shabbos, we're not going to be able to preserve these embryos. What's your answer? You have five minutes to decide. Now, who thinks here we can violate Shabbos to preserve the embryos? How many people say yes? How many people say no? 
So that's a different story, right? So let's. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that for Richard Grazi to discuss. That's an important halachic issue. I'm going to hold questions. I'm hold questions. I'm sorry. We can have questions afterwards. I just want to finish the uh, the for the next few minutes what the, what the halachic perspective is. If if you have somebody who's in this room and God forbid has a medical emergency on Shabbos, can you violate Shabbos to save their life? Absolutely. Pikuach nefesh, of course. Pikuach um, nefesh, save the life of a soul. If you have a woman who's pregnant and her fetus's life is at risk, but her life is not. Can you violate Shabbos to save the life of the fetus? Uh, don't tell. No. It's a potential life. It's a potential, but is it a real life? If there's a doubt, you violate for a real life. So if there's a doubt, if you or I have a medical problem, we violate. But that this is not the kind of doubt where you violate. So here's the here's the here's the uh, so the the Balalachas Gadolo says, and it's and it's uh, on your handout. He says that. First of all, the Mishnah says the following before we get to Balash's Gedolos, and we alluded to this in, in some of our previous discussions of abortion. If a woman's life is at risk during the course of a delivery, Allah is, you are absolutely allowed to perform an abortion to save the life of the mother. You are, and, the, and the Mishnah is very graphic, says you can, you can remove the fetus limb by limb in order to save the life of the mother. Now, uh, on the proviso that the baby is still in utero. The minute the baby's head comes out of the, uh, the, the birth canal, what's the halacha? Can't can't touch the baby. Why not? What does the Mishnah say? Because you can't sacrifice one life even to save the life of another. Implication being that prior to birth, the baby is not a nefesh. It may be a sub nefesh, a quasi nefesh, a pseudo nefesh, but it's but it's not a nefesh. So if it's not a nefesh, we said you're allowed to violate Shabbos for pikuach nefesh. But this is not a nefesh. I mean, this is a simplification of a complex sugya. But it's not a nefesh. So what can I do? So the halacha is, in the, and this is based on the on the on the Baalachas Gedolos, and subsequently based on the Ramban. I apologize, my voice is just about <laughs> just about reached the end. Um, that uh, yes, you are allowed, uh, and, and I guess obligated to uh, to. Uh, to violate Shabbos, but on what basis? Not because it's an actual nefesh, but because it's a potential nefesh. And what's the statement? The statement is in the in the Ramban, in the uh, in the uh, middle of the page, in the fourth line, Amr Torah Chalel Alav Shabbos Achas Shema Yishmor Shabbosos Harbe. You can violate one Shabbos in the hopes that this child will grow up as a living being and will be able to observe many subsequent Shabbosos. So yes, you are indeed allowed to do that. Uh, but let me ask you this question. We talked about this distinction between 40 days and after 40 days, and that before 40 days, the fetus, according to many, is mere water. So let's say a woman is pregnant less than 40 days. Can you violate Shabbos just to preserve the, the fetus of a woman who's pregnant less than 40 days? We said yeah. for potential, but maybe 40 days is not potential. Maybe less than 40 days is nothing. So what's the halacha? The halacha is, and we passed in this way, yes, you are allowed to violate the Shabbos to, to preserve a, a uh, a fetus who's even less than 40 days gestational age. So let me now ask you the following question. We have back to our embryo sitting in the laboratory. You can violate for an adult. You can violate for a fetus six months of gestation. You can violate for a fetus who's 10 days old. Can you violate for an embryo in the laboratory? Yes or no? Yes, no, yes, no. So the answer is, the answer is, and, this, and there's, there is consensus on this, no. 
you are not allowed to violate the Shabbos for the embryo sitting in the laboratory. Now, why not? So the, the, and this is, this is said by Rav I'm not going to read it inside, just in the interest of time, but he says, even those who hold that before 40 days you're, you can be Michal Shabbos for, an, for a fetus in the woman's womb, that's only in utero. Once it's outside the womb, it loses that status. Why? Because the halachic definition of potential, and which allows us to violate Shabbos, is the potential, if left undisturbed, this child will become a full child. Any, any embryo, any fetus in the womb, if you leave it alone, it's going to become a child. This, these few cells sitting in the laboratory, while admittedly, if you ask the scientists amongst us, do they have potential? Of course they have potential. They have the genetic potential to become a full human being. But if you ask the halachist, they don't have halachic potential with respect to the violation of Shabbos. Because you have to take that embryo and you have to implant that embryo. And you might ask me, oh, there could be a day, and there genuinely could be a day, where you could, you could put this embryo in an artificial womb. And, there's, and, and, and if we had another hour or two, I'd give you a talk about ectogenesis and the halachic ramifications of the artificial womb. But, but, it's, uh, but even then, I would submit that that's not halachic potential. Because you still have to, the, the scientists still have to modify that and continually provide nutrients. It's not just an automatic machine and you push, you push, you push the button. I apologize. Let me finish up, and then I'll take all questions. I'm really, really sorry. My, my sincere apologies. So, in, in essence, nobody allows you to violate Shabbos to preserve these embryos. So the question is then: Does that give you complete, um, a complete license to use them for anything you want? So the answer is no. So while it's true they aren't a nefesh by any stretch of definition, they're not considered a nefesh. At the same time, they're not they're not uh, analogous to cells that are sloughed off the skin, which can just be discarded. They still have a status of they still have some status of potential life. There still is reproductive seed in there. So while the overwhelming majority of rabbis do allow stem cell research because they don't believe that the embryo has the status of human life, which is in stark contrast to the Catholic Church, for example, there are a variety. There are a variety. I'm sorry. Embryonic stem cell research, correct, correct. And I should, I should add at this point, thank you, Ari, there's absolutely no problem with stem cell research on umbilical cord stem cells or adult stem cells, zero halachic problem, it's a non-issue, nothing for us to discuss. Um, so the majority allow it, some allow it with certain limitations. So for example, um, embryos that are going to be discarded anyway, or that are destined for, the, for, for destruction, those embryos, some say that embryos that are not implantable and scientists are working on ways to determine which are more, implant, more likely to implant and which are not more likely to implant. All these things are going to evolve with time. But by and large, uh, the, with, with, with a dissent or two, the majority of the rabbinic authorities do allow for stem cell research. So, um, and some say, by the way, if they're destined for destruction, it's not only permitted, it might be obligatory to use them for something which has potential, potential life-saving. I will tell you that the research itself is not pikuach nefesh. You're not allowed to violate a prohibition for research because research doesn't have direct, immediate clinical impact like we talked about with the Nodemi this morning. But in conclusion, and I'd be happy to entertain questions, in conclusion, we've covered in brief this couple of, uh, what's their names again? Yaakov and Rachel. <laughs> 
who are a real couple, they're a fictional couple for our discussion, but it, it, could, have been, it could be any one of us, any of, our, any of us, any of our children, and for sure, in the subsequent generations, there are going to be many, many more of these kinds of issues. In the morning, we covered historical issues. In the afternoon, we covered a very real-life issue, and I hope we've illustrated that halacha has, has what to say in a very thorough and comprehensive fashion about, uh, about uh, the modern advances in science, and I encourage you all to attend all the subsequent lectures, which will deal with many more fascinating areas of medical halacha. Thank you.